Archers Club with Brad and Al, where podcasting is part of the Now Playing Network. Featuring supporting characters, fresh perspective, popcorn supper, and the Pure Cinema Podcast. Each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, career touchstones, personal labors of love, and hidden gems among their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at the director's body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Uh, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we have a special guest with us today. Yes, we have a very special guest, a assistant organizer for a, a group we're a member of, a, the Chicago Film Discussion Meetup Group. Um, uh, Peter, how are you doing, Pete? Hey, guys, I'm good. Honored to be here. Love what you're doing with the new show. Oh, hey, thanks. Thanks. Yes, like, um, uh, P- uh, Peter has had, uh, Peter helps host on, uh, meet, organized meetups and, and, the Chicago, for the Chicago Film Discussion Group. And through those discussions, he's shown a lot of, uh, great discursions upon uh, all different kinds of directors, genres, countries, and things on film. And I personally can say I found, like, your perspective on, like, Malik is, so not only interesting and fascinating in its own right, but it's comp- I think it complements the kind of attitudes that um, that I have on it. That I'm really looking forward to see here. Hear your opinions uh, uh, on these different films. Right, right. We, we need you here today because uh, I think a lot of uh, film buffs consider uh, Terrence Malick to be kind of a sacred cow, and, mm-hmm. and critically, uh, there there is much respect, and, and he's. Uh, considered one of those uh, pantheon uh, filmmakers. And Al and I both have certain phases of his career where we're a little bit more skeptical, but 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 you are a fan through and through, right? Yeah, I will say, yeah, I think we're definitely going to be on different ends of the spectrum throughout the day here a couple mm-hmm. times. Because I think for me, Malik is, well, let me say this, I don't think he's ever made a bad film. Now, there's one I haven't seen, which I know we'll get to <laughs> today, but Malik is foundational to me. I don't think I would be a cinephile to the degree I am without him. Uh, I saw The Thin Red Line in the theater in, I believe, 1998, and that was just at a point in my life where I was getting into what we'll call art house cinema. I hadn't seen a lot of it. Um, I grew up in a small town. I didn't have a lot of exposure to things like that. And, you know, I'd rented a few movies. I'd, you know, tried to see some classics and watch them on TV at my parents' house or whatever. But seeing Malick and seeing The Thin Red Line on the big screen just blew me away. I had never had a cinematic experience like that and a cinematic art experience like that. And I've stuck with him to this day. I've found something to like in each and every one of his films, which I know isn't true for everyone in this room and isn't true for much of your audience as well, I'm sure. But... He's such a yeah. I mean, Malik is such a really fascinating figure, and I kind of, I kind of, he's been kind of been said to like explore this idea of transcendentalism, which mm-hmm. I'm going to give the completely bogus, ignorant definition to be. What can uh, people observe and feel, and that transcends people's mundane, ordinary existence? Aspires for like uh, for like meaning and purpose, and something beyond what we're what we're used to and familiar with, and. And I had a very similar experience that you did, Peter, with the exact same movie with with Tree of uh, sorry Thin Red Line. It was uh, it was a movie that was me to me was promoted in comparison with Saving Private Ryan, these right. dueling uh, World War II um, films, and 
the Thin Red Line was presented to me as this, but this is this reclusive director, this mysterious director who is spoken of in these hushed tones. And then, of course, Spielberg by then was a very well-known quality. <laughs> and so when I see Saving Private Ryan, for however amazing it is, it's things that, like, you, that I was already familiar with about Spielberg's talents as a director. But when I saw what Malick was doing in The Thin Red Line... I was similarly going, I just astounded because the visuals and the story and what he was trying, the intent was something I'd never seen anybody tried, even tried to do in a movie before. And I wonder if that has to do with what one's first Malick movie is because I had somewhat of the same reaction when I first saw Days of Heaven which uh, is the first Malick movie I saw, and similarly just stunned me as this uh, unparalleled visual feast. You know, how, how is this even done? Why, who knew movies can look like this? Because there's, there's great cinematography, and then there's this. But at the same time, by the time I got to A Thin Red Line, uh, I might not have been quite as uh, surprised or as blown away as you guys were from that. When you saw Days of Heaven for the first time, was it on the big screen or did you see it at home? It wasn't. It happened. It was on a television screen. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Eventually, I, I got to see a, a big screening of it. But uh, no, that first time, it was even on television, it, it got me. Oh, that's that's great. I, I still have never seen that on the big screen myself. And you know, Music Box, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of cases, films can are just can be so greatly enhanced by seeing them on a wider canvas, but but very rarely more so than a Terrence Malick film. Well, and Al, you mentioned the comparison to Saving Private Ryan. That's something I want to bring up just for me that was kind of made me think more about cinema in general. I saw both movies with a group of friends of mine, and obviously the first 20 minutes or so of Saving Private Ryan has been discussed to death. It blew everyone away. It was a traumatic experience in yeah. a lot of ways. And my, you know, and my friends and I saw that, and we were blown away. And then I think we had an expectation of the thin red line being comparable to that. Right. And it was so different that my friends were like, I don't like this Malik shit. You know, like, what is this art craft that we're watching? And mm -hmm. it's not Saving Private Ryan. And I think that's more a function of kind of just how old I was and where I was in life when I uh -huh. saw it. But it made me think about because I couldn't shake the thin red line. But it obviously wasn't the immediate thing that Saving Private Ryan was. And it, there's just that's something I find with Malick is that there's always something new to discover whenever you see his film. It could be a thought, an image, even a fragment of language of the voiceover. Yeah. Um, there's just so much there. He's a real authentic artist, uh, and I get the feeling that he's one of those guys no one else could make the movies he makes, and that is such an attractive quality to me. And for a longest time, it was uh, including during his exile, there was not. A filmmaker who would make films that even tried to do those. I uh, the closest I would say from a contemporary that came up would be um, uh, David Gordon Green, mm -hmm. who with his films like George Washington, All the Real Girls, was aiming for this ca same kind of feeling out of um, uh, out of a Malick film. Malick may be the most large scale personal film director. Because so many of his films, if, if not all of them, could only be Terrence Malick films. They deal so much with uh, his, his, his own 
obsessions to the point in, in a lot of these films to the point of autobiography and usually somebody who's that distinctive that idiosyncratic ends up without a large commercial following that's why you know uh peter you were talking about uh a theater goer reaction to in thin red line but i remember a similar reaction for tree of life which is even even more uh of an art film um but when the audience when you're watching in the audience on its first run there were a lot of people who were there because it was the new brad pitt movie Oh. And yeah. uh, so I definitely heard some comments and some rumblings in the audience of people who were not quite prepared for a film that was going to be that unusual, that was going to not follow yeah. the general rules that we expect from commercial filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Spielberg, to just say on Private Ryan, Spielberg is a consummate showman to me. He's a person who knows exactly the right camera move, the right performance um, aspect to go and, like, engage an audience, to go and give the audience uh, a feeling of satisfaction that the movie is delivering for them. Malik is showing you stuff you're not familiar with, stuff you can't immediately rectify in your head. You know? and, and I think that's kind of the cause of a lot of this um, friction that happens from people looking at his films. Because some people, really, myself included, really enjoy the idea that you're seeing something you never have before. And and you're looking further, and looking further often ends up being rewarding and fulfilling. But all, others just do not see that the effort is worth it, and then the reaction can come swiftly in the opposite direction. So on a surface level, it seems to me like there's two things that are immediately apparent that are true and consistent among all Terrence Malick films, and... Uh, one of them is the sheer beauty of the camera work, the way nature is portrayed uh, in, in different contexts. But he, he repeats these uh, wonderful, stunning beauty shots uh, and, and, and landscapes. And you know, I think as we get into talking about particular films, we're going to have some criticisms of one film or another. But what what I found is even the it, it, what I would view as the worst Terrence Malick film still has has such sequences of such beauty that there's no such thing as a, as a Malick film not worth seeing. Because even if other things might not be might not be working, these gorgeous, amazing uh, cinematography is. And then you have the other constant, which is a little more controversial, which is the voiceover. He, uh, in each film, provides either one or more characters as a, uh, a, a, a narrator, a poet, a something. And we'll talk about what it means differently for each film. And here's where I become a little more of a Malick skeptic. And a lot of these narrations, for me, kind of undercut the films. That's really interesting because I think for me, in general, just broadly speaking, I would say I feel like the films have been enhanced by that. I mean, I definitely see what you're saying in that they can veer off into pretentious territory fairly quickly. But in general, I like what they're getting at in terms of explaining the emotions of the characters a a lot of the time. Certainly that's not true 100% of the time, but broadly speaking. Our previous podcast, we ended up talking on Albert Brooks and like his sense of narcissism and how accessible we as an audience can find into his own worldview. Malick 
I think a lot of the distinctions on these different films is to how how much you are willing to go along for the ride and think, oh, is this what is this examination of this character, or is it just like, well, this is just a guy who's saying stuff that Malik wants to, mm-hmm. <laughs> that boy, he's just say, speaking the words that's coming out of Malik's mouth, you know. That stuff is a little, he's a little less successful in some of his films at trying that than um, than um, just in the visual beauty of his images. Unless you have, when it comes to narration, it has to have either like an intent or you get some increased complexity from the narration because otherwise it should almost always be eliminated. I'm a huge fan of the director's club, director's cut version of Blade Runner for that exact reason. Film is to me is a visual. You show things. You don't tell them. And to the extent that you're telling things in, when you could be showing them, you're screwing up. Unless they're, unless that's part of the point of the film that you're trying to do. But Malick's narration is so abstract that are they really, are they telling us what we're seeing or are they telling us something that's complementing what we're seeing? And I think it's also telling something about the characters that you almost couldn't see, like something from their inner lives or some, you know, something closer to that. It's not... I agree. Voiceover can certainly be a crutch, except for the way I th- he uses it. I think it's absolutely an enhancement. And to use your word, things are more complex from an emotional standpoint because of his voiceover. I think those the imagery and the voiceover and a little aspect of Malik that I want to illuminate uh, or point out for people, like actually really come into play out on like his first film, Badlands in 1973. It's a uh, part of like the quote unquote uh, new Hollywood movement, it involves these two these two young lovers played by um, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek as they have a uh, uh, great romance in a small town and then go on a road trip, visit various people uh, along the way, uh, some of whom uh, uh, Martin Sheen's character sees fit to uh, kill off, <laughs> uh, leading them to be this uh, fugitive couple that eventually captures the attention of the entire country. One of the most notable things about the film is that while they are on this particular kind of romance murder spree, this is continually being narrated by Sissy Spacek's Holly character. And her take on things is a very interesting and maybe even very specific kind of attitude upon, like, what kind of perspective would people be having upon this kind of um, rampage? Right, because she is uh, smitten by uh, Martin Sheen's character, Kit. She's a young girl and pretty impressionable. So what we have is one of my favorite devices, the unreliable narrator, where uh, you see what's going on on screen, but then you hear uh, the narrator's point of view, and it doesn't necessarily mesh. This was something that was probably worked uh, to the most effectiveness in Taxi Driver. Uh, But here... Uh, Sissy Spacek uh, has this uh, naive uh, point of view of what, 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 what what's happening, uh, which is that you know her boyfriend has has killed uh, killed her father, sent her on a uh, gone taken her away from her home, which she had never known anything else but her home, and so now she's trying to understand the world and what we're seeing of the world is different than what what she perceives, which. Uh, 
leads to kind of one of my favorite lines of narration in, in any Malik uh, after about his uh, fourth or fifth uh, killing. Uh, Sissy Spacek finally goes, you know, Kit's just about the most trigger-happy guy I've ever met. <laughs> in, in wonderful <laughs> understatement. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think she um, uh, says something soon after upon... Oh, you know, you just don't really know a guy. <laughs> he'll do one thing, and then next time he'll do the other. <laughs> um, what, what's a young girl to do when you find out your boyfriend's a psychopathic murderer? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's and and right, and like, and she finds that out, and then find and follows him along on this journey, and it's such an interesting take on um uh, on this idea of the road trip, and I think this is like part of there's a part of a whole trend of like. Like these kind of road trip journeys by like outlaw, by outlaw youngsters. Like kind of, I think a couple of years ago, Bonnie and Clyde came in and like was the new Hollywood kind of um, new kind of film. But then there's other contemporary film uh, films at the time, like uh, the Sugarland Express, or Thieves Like Us from Robert Altman. Yeah, and so right, and so I kind of um, it kind of leaves me to wonder for one thing about like how much of the um, rave reviews of this come from the fact that it is a new Hollywood film. That it is that the idea that idea of young people who don't need to obey the who aren't obeying the rules, man, and they're making their own way, you know, and or 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 at the very least, people's ambiguity with the rules come in, you know, akin to like the Graduate when Dustin Hoffman's character is similarly does looking for a reason, but Kit Martin Sheen's Kit is a person who's always looking for a reason, always looking for an opportunity. In fact, like, <laughs> like his sense of, like, let's make a deal is actually established out in the very opening, his first appearance, where he's a garbage man, and he goes and, like, says, hey, I'll give you a dollar if you eat that dead collie. <laughs> well, it, I think to me, like, it, it, it's interesting. The, the movie, I agree. What, what's horrifying about the voiceover is how naive it is, but the movie does a good job of setting up why she would be so taken by someone like Kit, because she lives in this small town, right? She, in the first thing, one of the first things you learn about her is that her mother's deceased, and her she lives with her father by by herself, and she's and he's never been happy as a result of the mother dying, basically. So she's in a situation where she's never been enough, I think, to make like the family happy. And then he, Martin Sheen's character, Kit, comes along, and he's focused on her and infatuated with her and no one I think has ever made her feel that way before and it's interesting that you would see like a young naive girl in a small town who sees a guy who is exactly like James Dean or meant exactly to reference James Dean and he would become her world in a lot of ways that's not to excuse the way she acts obviously but the kid character is so charismatic and so uh, well played by Martin Sheen that I just love his performance. And I, to me, like he reminded me in, in an odd way. I, he he's a charming, cruel, stupid narcissist who reminds me a lot of Donald Trump. Had he been born a, 
had he been born a poor man in South Dakota, I think Donald Trump would be Kit. And, you know, that, which is to say that there's some horrifying stuff there, but he is charming. And if you put a young girl around him, I can see her following him right. for a long period of time. He is so dedicated, like, he is so dedicated towards, like, making his mark. Yeah. And he, he treats the idea of making his mark as with so much about things the things that he possesses you know like he he when he when during the movie he they get to a rich person's house and he leaves wearing the rich guy's out jacket and hat when he's when he's finally uh, uh, captured spoiler alert for a for a decades long movie he literally starts grabbing rocks and puts up a monument and goes see that's where you caught me guys <laughs> right he, he's a media savvy uh, serial killer it, being a period piece from from the 50s it, it has uh, so many touches that ring true to that era and um, and it also you're asking kind of about the success of it it fits in with kind of people's fascinations with serial killers to begin with because this was based on a true-to-life case of a uh, couple named uh, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann uh, Fugit went on a similar, not exactly the same uh, killing spree in the 50s and became uh, media sensations. And one of the things Badlands asks is not just for us to you know look in horror at, at this serial killer, but also look if uh, at, at how people are responding to him and how he become how, how we make serial killers and people like that as celebrities. Well, to me, like um, Badlands is kind of what a hacky sack Olympic event would be, in that you do something absolutely superb. But should you have even done that in the first place? <laughs> now, what I kind of think that, like, what I kind of think Badlands does is it tries to, like, juxtapose, like, this serial killer spree, but with no judgment at all. Instead, it goes and combines it with this, these wonderful, beautiful imagery, imagery that we are meant to, I think we're meant to associate with the glory of America, those one, those like those great dusty roads, the cat, the Cadillacs, the small towns, and the and the wonderful like cottages and houses, and and it's meant to go and say this is this great world that we're meant to think is like the wonderful idealized version, and yet these guys are just killing uh, people left and right, and then. No real judgment gets imposed on them. I, I disagree that no judgment is imposed because I think the film is working ironically. And one of the early um, uh, th uh, clues about that is uh, Warren Oates' character of um, uh, Sissy Spacek's father is a, a sign painter. Mm -hmm. And so we see him creating this uh, kind of... Uh, advertising world of uh, what the people in the small town are going to see via his signs. But as we get to know him, he's kind of this gross, nasty guy who would uh, shoot his daughter's dog to punish her. And uh, so... All, <laughs> a, yeah, he, that yeah. was a little extreme. It was I a mean, little extreme, but I, th I think you're, you're kind of seeing... Um, 
you know, in kind of uh, miniature with, with with the short time Warren Oates has on screen before he's dispatched, how the 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 the, the character providing a viewpoint of what we're seeing might not be who we think he is based on his work. Likewise, the unreliable narration from Sissy Spacek. And then as you see these beautiful uh, shots of the Badlands of Montana, of the, the road trip they're on, and we're definitely seeing this kind of portrait of America, the fact that we're seeing it in the context of this story I think shows that uh, Malik has a layer of irony he's placing along this portrait. Yeah, and could I just jump in and say, like, exactly, I would agree with all that, and the movie's funny in spots, yes. too. <laughs> it has some subtle, dark humor that really serves to almost add a satirical, a nearly satirical edge in places, I think. It doesn't, it, it's not pronounced enough to call it satire, but he's definitely commenting on, I think, what you're saying, like this trope of young lovers on the run or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in two ways. One, the Martin Sheen character is kind of like a blowhard in a way that you know there's not a whole lot going on there. And the Sissy Spacek through the voiceover lets you know just how naive that character is. And that basically these are empty vessels in a lot of ways that are trying to define themselves through this voyage. But he's he's commenting on what they are and where they are along the way. And I don't think it's meant to it, it, it does judge them, but it does so with kind of a wink at certain times too, which I really like. We also have two amazing lead performances Absolutely. going on here. And with room enough to delve into the, their characters just through their acting. I think Sissy Spacek in particular with the less showy role uh, shows uh, so many layers to her character. Yeah, like uh, like what? Well, it's it's mostly what I've been talking about is is that is the the naivete, the fact that she that her narration, that her vision of Kit colors her view of the entire world. She is somebody who is, you know, might not be pulling the trigger herself, but she is so morally confused even for a young girl that it takes her quite some time to figure out what anyone should really have figured out very early in the proceedings, which is that this guy is a psychopath. And so you just see this this inner conflict as she slowly through the film get, goes to realize that. And that's the kind of thing that is made deeper with, with, with an actress like Sissy Spacek. Yeah, and I was going to say, almost one of the scariest things in the whole film is how naive she is. There's a sequence where a character, Cato, is shot, is shot through the gut, and he's laying on the bed slowly dying. And she comes in and just says, hi, in this real yeah, cheerful that's, way. That's right. And is like just so... It, that's where she starts in, you know, she wants to like almost still connect with him, but she doesn't know, recognize the severity of the situation in any way at all until she eventually, like later in the movie, there are scenes where there's just the two of them in the car for a while. And just through her facial expressions, you can see that distance and that hardening of her spirit between she and Sheen. There's a difference between that cheerfulness and that like kind of joke telling she is, in, in the face of severe violence early and that later kind of hardening uh, towards Sheen where she's just starting to realize what's happened here. Hmm. And possibly realize her own culpability, which right. we're not told 
whether she ever really does, but it's one of the questions of the film uh, because she gets to live happily ever after. He's executed, uh, and she marries the uh, prosecutor's son. So, you know, the, the, the question is, does she ever realize her culpability in all and, this right and i think but for me i don't see those i don't see that open question as any sort of conflict with her at all i don't find at any point that she is ever conflicted in any way i find her adrift i find her that she doesn't have this basic set of morals and ethics that we expect people to you know have from birth <laughs> but i don't see that ever really ethics or morality ever really coming into the picture of her like um, her alienation from Kit I think she's just ultimately bored and honestly I kind of think the the irony comes from is how her boredom to me actually more comes from the fact that she's becoming more domesticated and realizes that her husband is not the world beater that she thought he was. And they, when you realize that your spouse, the person you've claimed your love for, is, is just this kind of loudmouthed schmuck, <laughs> that's where I think she decides, you know, I'm just tired of of hanging around for this guy's next scheme. Right. And the film allows for that interpretation. It, 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 it does not tell you how to, how to think. It does not answer all, uh, all questions. Well, I mean, yeah. wh- where would you guys see, like, an example where morality comes into play, though? Where, where, for, for Sissy Spacex, anyways. No, no, she, she is an amoral character, but at some point she does become more aware of the situation she's in. So the fact that she does leave Kit, the fact that that, that she uh, separates herself from this situation, whether you want to look at it as her having realized what's been going on, or if you want to look at it as, a, as something selfish, I think either of those are valid interpretations. Yeah, for me, I don't see, I don't see really any evidence of her being like aware on her situation right down to her last line it's done in this i mean honestly i think there's a lot of charge in this movie comes from the fact that like very simply you do not expect a young teenage girl to behave this way Mm -hmm. to literally be so absolutely nonchalant that sure i married just the fact that you married the prosecutor's like the prosecutor's son that's just such a even if like, even if like you would have a huge amount of remorse, would that really be something that uh, a moment would you'd want to relive if you really realized the import of the murders that you're that you helped or you were along for the ride with? Can I say though, in the beginning though, I, I think there's something to be said for the environment she's in at the beginning. Like the beginning of this movie is just soaked in death. There's dead dog. There's a dead dog in the back of an alley. There's like you know her own dog gets shot. There's a scene like with, it's almost cut with a comedic timing where she inexplicably throws her fish in the garden, mm-hmm. like yeah, and, and, the just, carp, and just yeah. and just lets it die. And there, you know, there are also images of animals trapped in pens. There's like a cut. I believe it goes from like an, a cow being put into this like some sort of metal harness. So it can be force fed. That's yeah, right. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the environment she's in is. You're saying like you shouldn't expect like you would expect more morality from her or some morality from yes. her. But but when you look at well, the environment she's in, I, I think what maybe what the film is trying to say is that this is what's around her. And that's what maybe what she knows until 
Right, and the title comes into that. It's called Badlands uh, After All, which uh, refers to geographic location, but possibly also to what we're seeing on screen. The title does some really nice meaning, because it's not just the area that they travel near the end of their journey, and obviously any land which has a bunch of people shooting things up would be a bad land indeed. <laughs> but in addition, the reason they're called the Badlands is not because of like nefarious characters, it's because nothing can grow there. Absence. It's, right. It's mm-hmm. about right. It's about absence. Yeah, and I, I, Pete, I totally see what you're talking about with the, the idea on the, the death theme, because that's actually the first two shots of the movie. The first shot is Sissy Spacek embracing her dog in her in her small room, like they're like the through actually I think through the vertical slats of her bed. So it's like already making a, a constricted environment even more so. And then the first shot, the next shot you see is the first shot of Kit, and he has is prodding at a dead dog. So so the idea of like the animal being some sort of like big connection is something that has. It's something that's like obviously informed a lot of Malick's work, and this is another way of like another thing that Malick has done that I guess probably took audiences really by surprise out there was to see this kind of the level of scale on it. Like so often, like they would show like um, the main characters are dwarfed by their surroundings to like like that sense of absence that you describe. Just you feel it that sense that there is so little for these guys to hold on to. Right, and at the same time, like Malik interperses so often with these shots of nature, so like where like the tiniest leaf or this bug can fill up the whole screen. So like he has this sensibility in the movie, and in I would say in every single one of his subsequent films that the intimate and the vast, it's kind of it's almost like maybe a matter of perspective. But it's just, they're all one continuum. Well, if there's a scene that might be the most Malachy scene in Badlands, it's probably when they, after they kill, uh, he kills her father, but before he goes on his spree, they find a wooded location and build this uh, little homey paradise. They basically make uh, tree houses and and uh, decide they're going to fend for themselves uh, in the woods. Yeah. And you know, as you kind of look at what Malick themes will build throughout his films and how he feels about nature, uh, it, it's very interesting to have this scene where you know, almost like two children building uh, building tree houses, you know, they they find this moment of purity there in nature in the woods before it's uh, destroyed by them being found out. I found that was really interesting on levels that I don't know people appreciated when it the movie came out because Martin Sheen is also very uh, well known for. Uh, being the main star of Apocalypse Now. So there's a great many sequences where he's practicing in the woods, 
and which very evokes that sense mm-hmm. of uh, training from Mr. Uh, Mr. Willard. <laughs> I, I, I thought that I'm like, did Francis Ford Coppola see this as his audition? You know, like right? him running around with a bandana on and just like Ex- that's my man. Exactly. Exactly. I would not be surprised <laughs> if only Leonardo DiCaprio used that for the piece. That would work out just a, at least ten percent better because his rendition does not come close. And then there was even a sequence where like Sissy Spacek just dourly says, "I want. I had to carry." Five, uh, some water for five whole miles and she has these pigtails and she has this dark blue outfit and that to me looked nothing more than like this um, uh, she's ready for her communist work camp. (laughs) (laughs) But it also emphasized her her childishness which I think is important among uh, among a number of of Malick films in, in that the times when I think he is most Potent uh, in his voiceover, in some of uh, his points of view, is when he's working from a child's point of view. And even though Sissy Spacek is not a child when she filmed this, she's playing somebody with a, a childlike mentality, and that actually services the film. That childlike naivete is what allows us in, I think. And I think mm-hmm. the score under references that as well. The score mm-hmm. almost feels like it was coming from a child's music box or something yes. Yes. to me. Mm-hmm. I think you xylophone know. based or something, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly what or how it was put together, but it just seemed like something that she might have heard playing in her bedroom or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. you know? to work in the feedlot while I carried on with my studies. Little by little, we fell in love. As I'd never been popular in school and didn't have a lot of personality, I was surprised that he took such a liking to me, especially when he could have had any other girl in town if he'd given it half a try. Malik's ability to, like, show, like, this image, like, push things further, like, seems kind of ideally suited for this kind of, like, childlike view. And as if you've ever seen like a kid at the entrance of Disneyland, that's the, the level of amazement of things beyond they, their experience is something that like as any child growing up, they will hopefully get the you know the ability to go through that often to just have things blow their mind because it's a whole different framework. You know, I think probably more than any other filmmaker, Malik is able to bring that effect out. That that he that he brings that effect out, and then he and then he like seeks it out. You know, it kind of, in a weird way, <laughs> it actually reflects like um, kind of a, what Martin Sheen's character does in the beginning of the movie because like when he's like working his job as a garbage man, he's looking through people's garbage, but he's making a story out of everybody's gar- out of everybody's mm-hmm. garbage. Oh, this lady doesn't pay her bills. Oh, here's a oh here's a dog here. Let's throw him a let's throw him an apple. He's and it comes to mind. <laughs> it actually comes to mind to me a particular way of looking at Malik's attitudes and Ma- Malik's intentions and Malik's films that I think people might find really rewarding because I kind of get the impression went from those scenes that Malik is what uh, is called like a gleaner. Uh, gleaners are like um, uh, a group of people who go to like markets and then they find what food is left that have not been sold and they grab it to, for themselves but in this really wonderful film by the legendary French New Wave filmmaker Agnes Varda, she made a film called The Gleaners and I, and it was used that as a launching point to show people recycling, repurposing, reusing things, 
and showing them perhaps in a new way. And you can find all sorts of amazing moments and amazing occurrences could just happen through the most random, random bets. To me, that's kind of something that inspires Malik's whole body of work. I think that's his quest of his, in fact. Well, if you look at how much he shoots that he doesn't use, that definitely uh, fits in with this. Uh, Throughout uh, so many of his films, you hear stories of actors talking about uh, an entire plot line that was shot for the film but uh, never made it onto the film. And uh, and that fits in with 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 Malick's style, which, which seems to be to really create a story in the editing room. Yeah, and, and I think you're exactly right because watching some of the extras on the Criterion versions of these movies, he would talk about how he doesn't storyboard anything, or mm. he doesn't talk about it because he's mm. never a part of these things. <laughs> but others involved would talk about how there's no storyboard, and often like they would have like a production design set up to go do something over here and he on the way he would see something interesting on the other side of the road and they would just go over and do that instead and that that's what you're talking about is like it's living in the moment for him and finding something in there that speaks to him at that time and that's what he shoots and figure out the rest later sort of yeah i see a little bit of that effect and also with in bradlands with the level of irony brad that you brought up because one of these kind of moments i found kind of funny was he's burning the house down and he just grabs this random green lamp, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he um, uh, he later you in the tree in the tree fort they create. There's a nice lamp and a nice little dinner place setting out there. Just whatever he decides to carry and discard, and what do you want to keep? Un, non, un, incomprehensible in Kit's case, but it's it matters to him, you know. He's so um, convinced of his own correctness in things. He pontificates mm-hmm. a, a, a lot. And, and he, he's not educated, but he has a lot of opinions and, and right. a lot of self-righteousness, which may tie him into the yeah. fellow Peter that you uh, were comparing him to. And, <laughs> and, and it reminds me of another part that made me laugh out loud. I, I forgot the exact context, but he <laughs> some, he sees something has gone wrong somewhere and says, I'll bet they'll blame that on me too. <laughs> like he, like he's the, the innocent there, one. There's a car on the road, yeah. They, uh-huh. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And in a similar way, I think when he literally moves his um, um, Sissy Spacek's father into the basement, he comes back and says something like, uh, hey, I, there's a nice toaster. <laughs> no, that, that's exactly, you, you took the words out of my mouth. That was gonna, I was going to mention that as one of my oh. favorite kind of funny lines from the movie. He's just dragged his girlfriend's father's corpse down to the basement. And he comes up and he's like, I found a toaster. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, in a weird way, now that like when as part of this discussion, I really need to think about like its connection to the graduate might be a little more nuanced than than I'd ever thought because what's the standard line from the grad the most well known line from the graduate like is that um, Dustin Hoffman's character needs to find what's the meaning what's the purpose now that he's out of college and his uncle has the ultimate answer plastics plastics. <laughs> Kit has learned that lesson. It's all this stuff, you know? What's the most... When he visits his his garbage man friend in this, like, total beautiful, like, prairie, what does he focus on? Oh, look at all the junk over here. He, he's all equally clueless uh, when he's in the rich man's house. Like, a, a hardcore thief 
would find all kinds of angles of what to steal right. and how to make out uh, having now had access to this rich man's house. Right. And Kit's kind of just wandering around look at, looking at everything. It's like, okay, this this is interesting. No <laughs> sense of what something might be worth or might not be That's worth. Right. He's, just, he's just like, he, he's got it, you know, the, everything right there in front of him. He doesn't see it. Yeah, like uh, Oscar Wilde had said, like, the, uh, uh, the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh, Kit knows neither of these things, <laughs> but but he's obsessed that they that they're there. He wants he wants rocks and 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 so on and like um yeah yeah Pete. Well, I was gonna say just one of the interesting things about the movie is that he takes these these junk items like that he's taken at different points and there are two different times where he tries to give them meaning once he puts them in this balloon and sends them off mm-hmm. yeah. so that they'll be found by somebody you know somewhere and like they'll be remembered and then yes. another time some of the things he takes from the rich man's house which include a trophy of some kind <laughs> <laughs> you know who knows who knows for what but he buries that you know in the ground somewhere almost like a time capsule like he, yes. he, he he's surrounded by this junk which he rec- like it, which he wants to make into something meaningful, yeah. which is in the move. What is great about the movie is that it plays that in a funny sense. And it does give it like that melancholy feel of trying to immortalize these things via the balloon or the time castle. Yeah. And I think any movie that can do both those things pretty damn good. Yeah. Well, that's a facet. I mean, that's a facet that is some really fascinating exploration on, on what the movie's trying to do. And like the trophy thing, Harkens back to a certain like presidential candidate who like literally accepted a purple heart from somebody. A sold the purple heart, which is an award they've given when you, the soldier, has suffered injuries, and he just took it and goes, "Oh yeah, that's great. I'll, I will go put, keep it in my pocket to go because I should get trophies. I should get this stuff, you know." And that the idea of the artifacts. As a way of memory or, or showing that what you that you matter and that what you do matter works really interesting in two particular ways to me. First off, the first time he does it is in a balloon and it goes to the heavens. And I think Sissy Spacek's character makes some sort of statement to the effect of, we kind of knew we'd never be this happy ever again. But the second time the artifact happens, it's in the ground. <laughs> They know the demise is already, mm-hmm. right? And one thing I noticed when I watched the movie for this podcast was that the balloon is a nice red balloon and that floats off into this beautiful azure sky. But the only other real prevalent red, in fact, not even the wounds are that red in this movie, which is an interesting take on the violence, but the only other example of bright red is the helicopter that launches... Sissy that picks up Sissy Spacek and launches her into the air hmm. for her notor ironically for her notoriety. Kit and Holly have achieved this kind of level of remembrance, but um, uh, completely inadvertently from the things they were carrying or the things they were trying to do. If you watched it without knowing who directed it, you wouldn't one hundred percent be sure right. that it's a Malick film. It's the one film that fits in with New Hollywood with the time. Uh, the time he's making the film, um, yeah. and uh, and what's going to happen is soon Malick's films will be unmistakable from anything else in film. Well, I mean, he ironically, it's kind of like based upon what he leaves behind, right? Because irony and, he, and uh, humor, and right and humor, 
both of which are kind of based on the idea that there's multiple points of view, mm-hmm. and sometimes one might be right and one might be wrong. Sometimes both may be wrong, but that appreciation seems to me to show up kind of the most on Badlands for whichever reason, due to the constraints of how he could get the film made, what kind of like story he wanted to say when Badlands. There are elements in there that are not in um, Malick's later films, but it's up to us to go and like see if that becomes a detriment or an asset to like to the to the later movies that, that he does. The next film is very much puts to use the sense of narration and that sense of a treehouse, except that a, a, a treehouse world, except that treehouse world to me is nothing less than like the myth of Amer- the myth of the American heartland itself. In uh, Malick's next film, Days of Heaven in 1978, a couple played by Richard Gere and Brooke Adams who are um, uh, leading a hard scrabble existence trying to make do when they see there's an opportunity to go and um, uh, get some crops out in this remote far- in this remote farmland, which is this glorious field that is overseen by a solitary house on a hill. And there they um, encounter the farmer who runs that um, uh, that land, who they find his nearing his death. He may he has an illness that he may succumb to in the near future, to which they go and decide to hatch a scheme where the girlfriend will marry him and acquire their and acquire the property as a result. And but they're also traveling with a young girl, um, Linda who provides this very unique level of narration on the story. This kind of takes the innocence of Sissy Spacek and moves it over this kind of like, to almost what feels like a time capsule, a kind of attitude from a whole other world, and to which I think Malick's quite successful at making a whole world, not just a world, but a myth, a myth world in this, uh, this film. You, you said it with uh, time capsule, uh, because like some uh, like uh, Andre Rubloff from Tarkovsky, Days of Heaven uh, belongs on this uh, short list. What we might look at it as the pre World War One era around uh, uh, 1915, 1916, uh, and that we know through art and we, we know through paintings and you see uh, these visions of this period and often in, in a complicated story you'll be able to poke holes in it but because Days of Heaven is a fable because the story elements are kept to the barest minimum uh, you have something that succeeds at a level that few films do, which is creating this painterly impression of something that, that for me, in this case, is far more vivid than uh, a complicated, detailed story might otherwise be.
it, it's interesting you say that because you, I think the historical detail you're talking about is absolutely there. And the film starts with this almost Ken Burns like stream of images from like the period, right? Right. Where you know these kind of um, historical photos of you know the time period, and the movie to me, in a weird way, it, it feels like encased in amber almost, mm-hmm. where like I can't where where the film wants me to be invested in the love triangle and the emotion of it and i just can't get there right to appreciate the movie on that level it is one of the it might be the most beautiful film ever made honestly i don't think i've ever seen a film more beautiful but i just cannot get invested in it and and i'm Mm -hmm. not sure how much malik wants us to be invested in the characters because unlike badlands where he casts these two amazing actors giving layers and layers of performance we now kind of have actors who are giving um surface levels kind of Mm -hmm. like uh for fans of brisson uh french films he called his actors models and I think Malik might be doing a little of the same thing here with, uh, you know, particularly uh, Richard Gere, who uh, does ha- would, would give some good performances. But here is uh, basically providing a mood. And Sam Shepard is probably doing the most out of all of them, which is ironic because he's at the time was more known as a, a playwright uh, than an actor. But, uh, but I, th- I think we're being distanced uh, from the story here uh, in favor of the world the, the the story takes place in yeah I kind of think it uh, I kind of think it uh, in the middle of what you guys are saying because I kind of think it falls short on your visual side because they actually dedicate too much of time to this uh, romance part of things and in a similar way I don't buy into the romance because only a couple of prongs of this romantic triangle work for me. The problem, one of the problems of Days of Heaven for me is that, is that, like, I buy into the love triangle part from Shepard, unequivocally. I think Shepard, Sam Shepard's um, farmer character, does a masterful performance, in fact, in the sense that he, he... Show is a guy who has already been resigned to just going through the motions and having this be an annual ritual of the harvest for him. And Brooke and Brooke Adams like goes and opens up love in his heart for him, and you see that, or I see it, as an awakening for him. And it's brought about really, really strongly for me. Brooke Adams' uh, Abby character. She gets some benefit to me, probably the reflection of how he behaves towards her. That you really feel that when she fall, says to fall in love with him, it's not a ploy. It's not a sense that like they're scamming them, like they clearly planned in the beginning. Right. Gear sucks. He is a nut. He is nothing to me. Nothing more than an opportunistic bastard in the film to me. Just a guy who's like, yeah, he pimps out his girlfriend. Whereas, like, Kit in, in Badlands is somebody who has an interior desperation to be loved. In fact, I think there's a line in there where Sissy Spacek says he was, he was afraid that if he got shot, there wouldn't be a girl to scream out his name. And, and, and Martin Sheen does bring that out. Like, there's something about Gear, his just beady eyes, <laughs> and his, like, 
and his just general sneering demeanor, even in the very beginning, like where he just like just quits his job and just storms right off. Well, well he that, doesn't just quit; he gets in a fight. Yeah, the, the, exactly. The, the, he, and. I, I'm not sure how I'm much of a criticism it is to say that he's behaving like an opportunistic bastard when that's actually the character's main attribute. I mean, that that's who well, he's playing. Okay, right. That, but that's exactly explains why my why I find the movie so off-putting is because you have a romantic triangle where the romantic entanglement is uh, the romantic disentanglement is obvious. <laughs> like the whole point of a romantic triangle is that should be that one member of the triangle should want what the other one wants, and there should be some sort of at least some movement to it. And it doesn't have to be complicated. I'm not looking for a separation level like of romantic um, interplay, but there should be something. It shouldn't just be because of like this one guy who's really bringing it out, and another guy who, to me, clearly. Isn't. Well, this is a uh, this plot is one that uh, Malik clearly likes because it will actually repeat in his most recent film, which we'll talk about far later in the podcast. But but when we do, let's see how the song to song triangle compares with uh, the, the the days of heaven uh, triangle. Can, can I ask too if you don't if you have a problem with Richard Gere, I'd be curious to hear your take on this. He was the second choice for the role. Uh, Malik initially wanted John Travolta, who was apparently in uh, sweat hog detention at the time. <laughs> Gabe Kaplan won't let him out, so uh, you know Gear took the role. John what, Travolta what, was this before Greece? This would have been right would've around been, the same yeah, time. Yeah, he probably would have had to give up Greece for this role. And this was this before or after Saturday Night Fever? After this was after Saturday Night Fever. He would have been a so much better choice. You think he, so? Because, okay. because at least for me in Saturday Night Fever, he had this sense of, like, ironically, his character in Saturday Night Fever is kind of doing the same things that Kit's doing in, in, um, in Badlands, minus the shooting, but the sense of, like, I have the suit, I have the dance moves, here's a place where I can not just belong, but where I can be a star, where my normal, where my normal, like, behave, where my normal life will not give me that opportunity. So that sensibility, I obviously I think Travolta really could have brought that brought that across in Saturday Night Fever. He would have brought that sensibility across a, a lot more effectively than what Gear did for me in 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 this in the Malick's film. Well, Travolta absolutely would have made uh, Bill a more likable character, but uh, I don't particularly need him to be a likable character in his context. Uh, of the story. I mean, as you said before, it, it, it's really Sam Shepard, ironically enough, considering the class differentiation that the movie wants to make, who is the character we might have the most uh, sympathy for, even though he's viewed initially as you know the rich man in the house on the hill, someone we might uh, feel, since we're coming from the point of view of Richard Gere's sister, a uh, young, uneducated girl, um, uh, probably about, what, uh, 13, 14? Yeah. Uh, and, and so she's looking at, and again, we're back to subjectivity, is, you know, she's looking at, Sam Shepard's character is this kind of uh, ideal of a rich man, but then as we get to know him, he you know he is the only one not acting out of uh, uh, not trying to, to pull a fast one here, right? Not opportunistic, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, if you ask me, like, who, which set of characters would I want to hang out with in this movie, I would much rather live with Sam Shepard and his right-hand man, one of the greatest <laughs> character actor faces mm, of all yeah. time, yeah. than Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, and, and the young girl. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, but I, I do say, like, I think for me, like, Days of Heaven falls into a trap Malick sometimes finds himself in, where it has, like, the exact wrong amount of plot in it. It, 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 his, late, his later films can be plotless to their benefit, and he can is capable of more plotter in films like Badlands or The Thin Red Line. Here, he creates an expectation of an emotional love triangle and a plot that plays out in that way, but he's not capable of giving you characters that you actually care about in that context. And it's, it creates an expectation that the film can't deliver, where it almost would have been better off either going full-blown melodrama or just more abstract. But where it is, like in that mid-range, I don't think works. Well, I think mm-hmm. the, the, it's sur- the, the, the story aspect is serviceable. I don't have a, a, any particular problem with it. But I do think that if we put too much emphasis on, on the story of Days of Heaven, we're losing what... Days of Heaven is really about, which is pure cinema. Yeah. Which and and it's not just because we'll we'll talk about beautiful visuals in the context of a lot of uh, Malick's films. I don't think I've ever seen the framing and just the, for instance the way uh, the house is utilized. You have all you know everything is of course shot during magic hour. You have the the, the sun coming in and providing these wonderful. Uh, light and shadows, but then this this lonely house in this field is so evocative and and so one of these kind of rich rich images that that, that you just uh, can't forget, and it provides a contrast from the the vastness of the field to when we get into the locusts and you know these extreme close ups of uh, the grasshoppers uh, nibbling on the grass and, and nature as a uh, both a, both something of awe and something that's uh, fierce and dangerous. Now, to be to be fair, locusts and grasshoppers are different, so I hope we don't get that. Any protests from the <laughs> National Grasshoppers Lobby of America, these are all just evil locusts which are causing the, pro- <laughs> causing the problem. And just a little, a little bit of a, a little bit of a description on Magic Hour. This just this is a wonderful, like uh, sense of lighting, which actually is it's kind of funny. It's a little bit of a misnomer because it actually only lasts about the last half hour of a day before sunset. Like things get imbued in a very warm glow. Now that's about a half hour of a day, and Malik, Malik and his crew worked really hard to make sure that. Like many many scenes were exclusively filmed during this just one very specific period, and the effects pay off because this is one of the most luminous films that has ever been put on a movie screen. Like just the glow of the images has this sort of just quality that to me just comes across like the that like life and and some sort of kind of essence is just pouring out from the film itself. You could just, like, not concentrate on the fact that there are people doing things in the movie, <laughs> which, go and just luxuriate in the, just the images. And just, like, when you see, like, a magnificent painting, you can just go and just have this feeling, like, wash over you, and just, like, wow, this is just amazing. Like, where the, the placement of color and the placement of the light just feels just right. And then when he brings in his set pieces, which is both the the locust invasion and the fire, 
that is uh, is started uh, after uh, Richard Gere's character kills uh, Sham- Sam Shepard's, y- you have this kind of level of spectacle now added to the beauty that it you know is yeah. what film is about when it comes to how the visuals work with the story with the characters with the theme yes. i think that's cinema when, the way mm-hmm. to clarify the way i'm using the term pure cinema is visuals divorced from all these other elements is something that is coming at you straight from the process of the camera filming what we're what we're seeing yeah. and then how that's done and how a master like Malik can raise the stakes yeah. on on that to the point where it transcends the story I, and yeah, the plot. I, and I do yeah and I, I see what you mean. I mean like I, I want to pass along two two particular comparisons by way of like by way of this what we're describing Pure cinema is a very, very rare quality. The ability to like use the components of a film composition, its sense of light and shadow and shape and color to give a reaction is something that is very, very infrequent. And usually when a director does it once or twice in their career, it becomes it's magnificent. Like right. my my two great exam my favorite examples are the bone flying through the air in two thousand one that becomes a ship. Which, of course, works to, in the story, but just as a pure image mm-hmm. or a pure cut is magnificent. And another great cut is when Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia blows out the candle, and this small candle cuts to like an epic sunrise right. over a vast desert. These things have this great value and effect and feeling totally apart from the story. But the thing that Malik can do is Malik drops these guys like it's nickels from a slot machine. <laughs> just from his earliest film on, he's able to put on these just amazing images that not only can fit like stories, the story he's making, but also just work as just, it feels on an elemental level. Like in, in, in Badlands, it just harkens back to Kit before he puts in the monument and before he sets up these rocks. There's a film, it's shot from below where he's straddling this caddy and he has the gun in the landscape like it's this epic poster of like him triumphing on a summit and it makes him it makes him for that moment in his own mind he is a myth the the ultimate myth of the gunslinger mm-hmm. and like on on the on the mount on mount cadillac <laughs> and you just get that feeling from it the, the sense of majesty in his own mind all just from that image the same way that that house in Days of, in, in Days of Heaven looks by itself, just out surveying this landscape, and just the lines of the tra- of the people on the trains as it as it clatters over to their destination, the lines of people as they are all threshing, just the the stripes of the wheat as it's all being brought in on bushels, and then that fire, that sense of consuming, and by those locusts. That actually makes it transcend into a myth. Like, the sense of a myth world is so sharp in sequences like that. And I really think that's the best lens at which uh, I I like to approach this film, is it's a fable. It's not a realistic uh, story. It, it, It is a myth. It is a fable. 
And uh, there's also a great circularity in the use of fire, mm. uh, which provides that amazing climax to the film, but also is where the film starts in these uh, Chicago uh, steel-melting uh, factories right. where we first meet uh, Richard Gere and, uh, and, and you know, he shows his thuggish nature kind of right off the bat and, and all around them is melted, uh, fiery steel. He's a, yeah. he's a goon Prometheus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he brings in the, he brings in the um, uh, original sin into this <laughs> idyllic environment. I mean... Yes, a lot of these images in, in Days of Heaven do come across like mythic, maybe possibly like religious. I mean, uh, alas, though, I kind of think some of the fable stuff falls short because, like the fa- like that, if you think about it, that fable of they want to romance a guy who does not have long to live. That's a great premise for a fable. The plot twist of well, the guy doesn't end up getting sick after all. That's not that's not very effective. You want all you all you would have had to do, honestly, right? Would have been something like, but then something happened. Like maybe even even something that's tried to saying the love helped resuscitate him. You know, but no, instead the answer that or answer Mal gives in there is nothing. Well, he just keeps staying getting just keeps not getting sick. <laughs> that's not even that's not even satisfying in a fable like way. You know. Well, I, I do think that one of the nice touches is like when the love dies, the land dies. Like that's mm-hmm. almost like Arthurian, like the Arthurian legend or something like that. You know, so I mean, th- there is that like beauty to it. I, I guess for me, like I just don't feel it at a very basic level. I, I mean, I don't want to spoil the end of the movie. Like Richard Gere's character is is mowed down, right? And to me, like I didn't feel anything, right? And, and I didn't feel anything when the bond between he and Brooke Adams was broken. Like I just there was there wasn't anything there. Like we got partway to having one of the most pure cinematic experiences, and I just couldn't get there with the story that. It, he you, I just have to add, you made a really cool point about like how if you just if the if the central fable was just connected or twisted in just such a way that it matched closer that could have like literally made a film that to me was transcended all the way through on a visual and a story level but it doesn't quite because enough of the triangle the gear side of things is uh it falls through especially the the end riles me a little bit too because yeah i i, I don't I, I i when you have a third act death that doesn't register that is a fairly big misfire in my mind which death Gear, gear. Gears, okay, but, but if we're not sympathizing with him to begin with, you know, how, how much do we need? Do we need to you feel bad for his You want to pump your fist in the air going, character? yeah, scurvy well, made I his medicine. That, I, I, don't, I don't know, because I think uh, Shepard's death registered as the death that took something out of us as an audience where... Um, you know, and, and in fact, uh, the death then led to the visual apocalypse of uh, uh, of the ending, and then Gear Gear's death, you know, took place in epilogue. We're wrapping things up. We're out of the days of heaven, and trying to see where these characters, you know, will will retake their places in this particular uh, culture they live in, and how. Particularly the Gears uh, girl, Brooke Adams, Abby, yeah. and then his sister uh, are going to make their way, and or don't, or you know, don't, like, right? I, that's what I mean. That's how I feel about like Linda's exit in there. Like, okay, she runs off, and and I don't, I really don't care. <laughs> I don't care one. In fact, I really don't care 
in the exception that she seems to have dialogue that could have been recorded from a time capsule that was from a hundred years ago or what have you, I'm not really interested in Linda or what she has to say. Well, it's like a carny exhibit to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean that goes back to the whole narration issue, and now we've got narration that is m- more mannered than in Badlands. But at least because it's coming from a child, the fact that the the narration doesn't necessarily make a lot a lot of sense makes sense. Makes sense because it's it's from a character who's looking at the world skewed, not, mm-hmm. not, not skewed in a different way than Sissy Spacek's character is skewed, but, but, but still skewed by having to view all these adult things through a child's eyes and then verbalize, then verbalize them yeah. as a narrator she's not prepared to be. You know what? It, like, it, I, can see, I can see a world. That's a trailer guy put it. In a world <laughs> where Days of Heaven... The main problem was dealing with them just trying to make it in this farming community. And there was no romantic triangle. And there was no soap opera theatrics. And there was no real care about what the, who the romantic interest would be. But all, but all it was was like the Gear and um, Brooke Adams trying to make it. And, her narr- and Linda's narration is all about that. It was all about that kind of struggle. That would be, I think, a much more successful effort. Because... In addition on the narration, there's stuff that not only the Linda's character would not know, but she actually would not care. She wouldn't care what Sam Shepard's awakening of romance right. in, any, in any way. <laughs> We're transitioning from a, a narration that uh, serves the plot in Badlands into what's going to become a more general Malick narration of yeah. this is Malick's point of view. And he starts it in Days of Heaven, but because we can because I think we're we're a little confused by this young girl and, and what she does yeah. or does not understand, we're uh, we're not too distracted by the strange language of the narration. But I, I think depending on your point of view of Malik's narration in general, it could become more distracting later. Right. The narration is moving from an area where when, it descri- where when it's describing the story, ostensible story, the ostensible plot, it's becoming less and less effective and, in fact, less and less relevant. But when it's, disca- when it's describing the setting, the place, and the general feeling of the environment where they're in, it's becoming more and more effective because it's becoming more and more about that. More about setting up the scene, setting up this environment. Well, it's interesting you say that because when I was watching some of the extras, the way they got that voiceover out of her was that they would just show her like dailies, basically, and ask her to describe what was happening. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and so she wasn't – the voiceover that you hear was not done in character. I don't believe. Like, it was just done as the actress, the young girl, describing what she saw. Wow. And he felt that that gave a more immediate, like, uh, take on it, I guess. It does, but that sure as hell surprises me, because I don't... I can't imagine too many young girls in the 70s that would talk like that. (laughs) Right. It might have been, like, a a really great discovery Mm -hmm. on... um, on Malik's part, maybe akin to like how when Werner Herzog found that uh, this Bruno S. fell. Yeah, yeah. Like, take on the world is so fascinating and unique. It's like, I gotta put him in 
I gotta put him in the movie. We seen trees that the leaves are shaking and it looks like shadows of guys coming at you and stuff. We heard owls squawking away, hooting away. We didn't know where we were going, what we were gonna do. I've never been on a boat before. That was the first time. Like this kind of gleaner tendency I was talking about earlier, Malik finds a level of fascination and he chases after it and he tries to put it to use, tries to get it to fit. Well, it's a spirit of experimentalism, right? Yeah. Like, and I'm sure, you know, look, what we see on screen is what they've deemed a success. I'm sure behind the scenes, like, there are probably many, many failures <laughs> in, you know, like, probably why he's burned a few bridges along the way yeah. where we didn't have to sit in the room where he figured out how to do, that, that's right. you know, that voiceover or how to get a specific shot. We don't, we just get to look at it. Yeah, I kind of think that there was a, the locust scene. Oh, no, no, but the earlier scene where um, Gear gets into a fight was actually um, filmed by... The cinematography was done by Haxel Wexler. He was the cinematographer for the film. There were two. Was he? There was a basic basic interesting story about it where where he was... uh, The original cinematographer had left or been kicked out, and Wexler came on to uh, be the cinematographer, the backup cinematographer, Mm -hmm. and he was not credited as a cinematographer... When the movie was first released, so there's a kind of a fun story where he actually sent a letter to Roger Ebert saying that he saw the movie with a stopwatch to show that more than 51 percent of the footage was in fact Wexler's. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting. I, I did this again, just coming off the Criterion bonus stuff. But there's a great interview segment with him on the Days of Heaven. Wexler, you mean? On, with Wexler and the prior cinematographer, I'm going to butcher this name, Nestor Almendaros. Almendros. Okay. Yes. Um, had worked apparently, I think, a lot with Francois Truffaut, oh. and had a. A, uh, a hard deadline essentially to go back and work with him again and that was why he had to leave because as you imagine Malik may have been a little bit behind schedule oh. so, so he, like that was where like there are there were two cinematographers that came in and I believe this movie I did it win the Oscar for best cinematography well if it didn't <laughs> I think it did I, I, I believe it did <laughs> There'd be few things like more deserving of best of best cinematography than something uh, than what Days of Heaven manages to do. And this idea of like the narrator going out and putting up a, a more of a setting, more of a sensibility to inform like a situation apart from like the individual like events of a plot, like just was germinating and apparently was germinating for a long while for Malik because it took him a a long, long time to go and, like, make his next movie. Thin Red Line, for, like, he was made 20 years later, but in dur- 1998. But during those 20 years, he was not doing nothing. He had what was he all kinds of projects that he wanted to get off the ground, but uh, never quite happened. Probably the most significant uh, for our discussion is going to be uh, a movie he wanted to do called Q. Uh, which was a story about uh, the birth and evolution of the universe. Hmm. <laughs> and was Q short for anything? I have no idea, but it, it was it was it was something that uh, never left his mind. As as uh, 
we're going to see in uh, future films. But that 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 the germination of this idea of showing how life on Earth began started very early for Malick. He was also looking at an adaptate, adaptating something called The Desert Rose, which was a story about Jerry Lee Lewis. So Malick oh. doing the Jerry Lee Lewis story, that could... Uh, could have been interesting. And just real quick on the uh, Jerry Lee Lewis thing, that's actually still listed as an upcoming project for him on IMDb. Ah. So maybe maybe it's still possible. I don't know who you get to play him these days. Right, but, right. You know, <laughs> Zach Efron. That's you. Zach, <laughs> uh, <Zach>, oh boy. <laughs> well, he, he, he's had otter casting choices. So, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and then he was going to take the, uh, the wonderful uh, Japanese film Sancho the Bailiff uh, and create a stage production which was then going to be filmed uh, by the great Polish director, uh, Andrzej Vaja. So (laughs) this this 20 years of of no activity uh, seemed to us to be that he was just kind of, uh, you know, hanging out by his pool, uh, but uh, he was working on some stuff. Well, it's also bolstered by his reputation about how he's like never given an interview and until very, very recently they would not uh, countenance like for photographs of him. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, there's a fun revelation how in Badlands there is a, there's a scene where, where a rich man's house is being visited by an architect who, who instead encounters Kit and just leaves him a message. That person is played by Terrence Malick. Which is like the last appearance, right. last appearance on a film appearance. Album. Alfred Hitchcock, he would not become right. Yeah. It re- interesting too. Uh, he, he made a short film prior to Badlands, which uh, was called Lanton Mills, which was actually his thesis statement at AFI that he's in as well. The cat, oh. the cast consists of Malick, Harry Dean Stanton, and Warren Oates. And wow. if anyone out there can point me towards where I can see this thing, please let the guys know here at the podcast. I would I would love to see this. And apparently, as far as I know, it's only available to be seen if you're a member of the AFI. But wow! So Our, so, but it, I would give my left sign, <laughs> right arm to see that. Sign me up. Hey, yeah. A movie of Harry Dean Stanton and Warren Oates. They're going to have an ornery off. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like um, like that. So it's, I guess you see where the Oates connection came in. I guess on Badlands, that certainly that certainly did not hurt. No, and, get him. and apparently it's a comedy as well, which I find all the more interesting. So you know, just out of pure curiosity, I would love to see this thing. Oh sure, sure. I mean, like just the idea that like what could be the originating point from Badlands? Because for the all the limited budget and shooting schedule of that film. It's a pretty well composed work, and like, and very much a consistent vision. Mm-hmm. So, how did how did something like that come about? Oh, super curious to see it, what it, parts manifested first in Malick's uh, you know filmography. Well, ironically enough, he was uh, a big fan of uh, Arthur Penn, uh, the director of Bonnie and Clyde, and mm-hmm. uh, there was some kind of uh, assistance. Uh, given there i'm not sure what nature but he did arthur penn does get thanked in the ending credits of badlands Uh aha nice oh interesting i I think malik is almost he's not quite at orson levels lost project level (laughs) but you know that kind of might have been aspect is definitely there for him especially in this pre uh thin red lion wilderness period you know like what, what could have been those were you know prime years obviously well, that's true, but then, like, if Orson Welles had a, a filmmaking spurt in the last part of his career, is where we'll get we'll 
would his um, output be comparable to Malik's at the end of his career? Which, well, that's that's something we're going to go and like out and explore. But but first, we're going to go and get to the film he actually was able to finish, The Thin Red Line, out in 1998, featuring the Battle of Guadalcanal. It looks over the travails of a, a whole multitude of soldiers who are uh, sent out to the island to encounter uh, the conflict there. A gigantic cast, more bigger cast than like um, than everybody in Badlands and uh, Days of Heaven combined, almost <laughs> of actors uh, uh, make their way make their way there, including like George Clooney, John Travolta, John Cusack, John C. Riley, Woody Harrelson. But the main focus in the movie is a, is about an internal conflict between a pacifist soldier who run, keeps running away and and living with the uh, local population, played by uh, Jim Caviezel, and a gruff sergeant who has uh, Caviezel work for him, uh, played by um, Sean Penn, who like is as cynical as uh, about human nature and war as um, Caviezel is optimistic about uh, human nature and. The conflict rages among like not just their conversations and their differences, but also upon like the taking of a very uh, the taking of a vital hill, which has a conflict between um, a Nick Nolte's colonel and a um, soldier played by Elias Codius who thinks of it as like a suicide mission, and he really cares for his men and doesn't want to send them into a horrible like pointless situation. As the as the movie goes on, it goes and like explores on these ideas of like. The sacrifice, the waste, the destruction—all through it, you have narr- uh, you have narration from many, many of these soldiers. In a particular voice, as they explore the futility and meaning behind their actions, is it their voice, Malik's voice, or Malik trying to do some sort of universal voice, some sort of thing that unites everyone? It's a question I would run by you guys as to how successful do you think the narration is in here compared to his narration in his other films. The the problem now is that the the narration is in the mouths of adults, and hmm. in many cases, it's still the lines still seem to reflect this kind of childlike wonder and naivete that uh, makes sense when being narrated uh, by a child by a child or a young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in this case, as we go from narrator to narrator to narrator, and I don't, and look, I, I'd have to see this many more times to really kind of distinguish whether each narrator is, truly is using their own voice or somewhat of Malik's voice, but I did sense kind of a, a merge of a lot of these narrators into the overall, let's call him Malik narrator. To me, this is his his best film. I, I think everything comes together here. I think the voiceover. I think the the it's more plot driven just by the nature of it being a military mission. Yeah. Um, the emotion, the acting, the visuals, which are always there in a Malick film. Yeah. Uh, Hans Zimmer score. I think adds a lot to it. I I really like the shifting voiceover here, and I guess I I, I see it a little bit different. I understand what you're saying about it being kind of childlike but i don't see it as childlike so much as it is human basic humanity it's simple but i wouldn't 
put it in it i wouldn't add it like childlike as a negative connotation it's basic emotion it's fear in a lot of instances mm-hmm. you know they go back to like there are repeated shots of the film of soldiers being asked to go up the hill and just their first response is just like just straight up fear for their lives yeah as you would expect and i think when you're in a very life and death situation like that you're going to have those very basic feelings and then what this film does so well is kind of he, he run, goes through the malachizer <laughs> where he then makes a grand theme out of it <laughs> you know like he has malachizer the, yeah he's made this the, he has these soldiers emotions which then he goes into this philosophical consideration of what man is capable of and where these men are and it's you know the uh, what the beauty in nature and men destroying nature men destroying each other and what i like about it is that well it's far from a simplistic thing of just men you know the evil nature of men it's far more like how conflicted and how they're aware of it but they can't change it Hmm. in a lot of in a lot of cases and and what i love about that what that malik does is that he gives you both sides of the equation he gives you the possibility and the reality without shortchanging either and here that is man versus nature it's the japanese versus the americans the japanese simply aren't others quote unquote in this film like he spent he gives you a sense of their humanity as well this is really uh you know really a great film that like I said, it had a huge impact on me, mm-hmm. uh, and I really think like you can go back to it many, many times and see a lot in there. What got me to appreciate the narration more for The Thin Red Line was Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, fir- that infamous first ten minutes of Saving Private Ryan was so effective to me at literally making me incredibly aware of the chaos of war, the sheer abyss of how everything gets destroyed and any idea that like that there's order or justice or faith, all these things that people hold inside themselves don't mean shit when you get to that wartime environment. And when I have that perspective in mind, then the narration to me, the childlike nature of it, does come through and I really feel for it for me because a adult trying to experience that level of chaos and destruction and, 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 and sheer sense that everything is all that you sense of order and, and justice and fairness is not in existence you're facing in the abyss is a similar distance than a child trying to appreciate a myth or youngsters trying to find their way in the world in Badlands. So I find like that, to me, I think, is Malick's greatest gift as a filmmaker. Something he's able to deliver in spades in every one of his movies is this sense of people reaching for something beyond their understanding or beyond maybe even their capability to understand. And I kind of think... And, I, and it's ironic it takes the contemporary filmmaker like Spielberg uh, to, to go... Helps me appreciate what Malick is doing or helps me articulate it, helps me make, make sense of it. I would be more enthused about this film if it had stuck to what I think is its major plot line that I think is the one that covers everything uh, that you guys are are referring to. And and, um, um, if there are three basic uh, 
plots going on here, although there are actually many more minor plots, there are kind of three that we spend a good deal of time on. Uh, the story of the taking of the hill uh, really is, for me, the heart of, of A Thin Red Line and is, is the, the, what I, I wish the film had focused on to the exclusion uh, of the other two uh, plot threads because it is so effective and it shows uh, war, war in a visceral way differently than Spielberg does, yeah. where Spielberg kind of takes a God's eye point of view. Um, Malick often uh, is more subjective in, in, in the sense that you're, uh, the, 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 the bullets, the, the fire is coming at you yeah. being represented by the camera. And then you have this amazing... Uh, kind of two-hander uh, between uh, Nick Nolte and uh, Elias uh, Cotis, who, as you mentioned before, are, are having this uh, battle among themselves over whether this hill can be taken, yeah. whether it's worth it to be taken, what does it mean that, that, if, that if we're going to take the hill, lives are going to be lost. At one point, Nolte says to him, is that acceptable to you? Is there any uh, yeah. is, is there any circumstance where you are willing to sacrifice the lives of your men, which uh, you know really I think says something profound about you know what people in, in warfare are asked to sacrifice and the attitudes you know the different attitudes about uh, about war itself. And one of the things I really really appreciate about this movie. Um, is that it has a range of performances, and 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 by that I don't just even mean that they they're different like kind of characters or their characters have different demeanors, but also kind of a range in quality of what they're trying to do. You know, like like you can make a case that Jim Caviezel is kind of a very much of an idealized feeling of pacifism. I think that's a fair argument to it, that, you know, that the guy would have to take an ethical pay cut to play Jesus Christ in his upcoming movie, you know? <laughs> like, he'd have to slum it a bit. But, um, uh, that conflict between his, like, optimism, and, and the optimism to me just literally can all comes from, comes from his eyes in such an effective way, and to me, I really appreciate that contrast between the kind of gruff and brooding nature of Sean Penn as they have their debate in much the kind of a similar way about how Sam Shepard's character's transformation reflects well upon Brooks, Brooke Adams, or at least how I found it, I find it like, I find it just really rewarding and nourishing in a way how Sean Penn, who is this hardened cynic in the, who thinks he knows it all about war in the beginning, how a crack has been opened and he gre has honest grief for something that gets lost for Clavizel. And yeah. I felt for it. Yeah, can I just say, like, I think so, exactly. Although what I think is interesting about that relationship is one of the kind of central conflicts in the movie is that Sean Penn wants to be the cynical hard person. Right. But he can't, as much as he wants to stop feeling, he can't. Mm -hmm. Like, you'll see it, like, even when he goes, there's a scene on the hill where he goes to tend to a soldier he knows is going to die just to try to make him feel better or to give him morphine, yes. basically. Get him back if he can, but absent that, give him morphine. Right. And that's not, you know, a cynical person would just leave that soldier out there. And he wants he wants to be able to stop believing, but he can't. And the, the reason, like, he's in a, a, a dichotomy with wit is that wit is 
doesn't find it painful to believe that's how he gets by. Yeah. Whereas belief is keeping wit alive in a lot of ways, and belief is killing Penn like in a way where he mm. can't makes it harder to be nice. there. We see that right when, at right when, at the beginning where he refu- he refuses to discipline a soldier that he that he could discipline. Right. Which yeah. Nolte character would would immediately discipline. That's God. That's so well put, Peter. Like what's one person's like what's one person's nourishment is another person's poison, and it both comes flows from the same source. You know, yeah. and and the the Codius Nolte uh, uh, conflict is just really effective as well. Just the sheer level of empathy that Codius is able to put in for his men. You really feel for. Ironically, it's actually a more Christ-like figure for him because he really feels and takes on the suffering of his men. And and Nolte is so good at showing this calcified ambition of his. You know, where he feels his sense of duty is 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 impeding that. Possibility of empathy, right? Because Nolte is not is not necessarily wrong when he uh, gets rid of uh, Cote's character right. because they need to take the hill. Because uh, you know Cote's character is, is first and foremost a human, a man, and you know, and and Nolte is first and foremost a soldier, and you know, we're asked you know to contemplate the difference between. The humanity and the what you have to give up of your yeah. humanity to to be a soldier, but kind of uh, circling back to the the Clavizel, uh plot line, which um, and the stuff the, the acting between him and Penn is really good, but I have a problem with how it's introduced, which is actually the first scene uh, in the film after mm-hmm. a wonderful. A shot of an alligator coming out of the mud, yeah. but uh, then we, we we are in this this Melanesian uh, village in the South Pacific where uh, Clavizel has gone AWOL and is uh, is cavorting with, with with what will soon become known as the Naturals in another film. Uh, but <laughs> right. but but as far as this film goes, they they may as well, as well be the Navi because these uh, the, the the idealists the idealism of which this this culture is shot where we get to know nothing about this culture other than because they it is nature because it is primitive viewed as some sort of primitive especially by Clavizel's character equals good yet yet they're not humanized they're not made three-dimensional so now we're invested or we're asked to be invested in Clavizel's idealization of this culture, which I don't think is earned by the film because it doesn't show us the culture, and then eventually Penn's idealization of Clavizel because of his openness to this culture, which we never get to know in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just kind of by a, a domino effect, I, I, I feel myself kind of removed from this plot line. That, that's mm. interesting. I don't. I guess I don't ascribe that much as much meaning as you do to those early scenes. Like I think for me, they they do a lot of the things you're saying, but I think they're partially there to. I think the initial impression I had of the Wit character, the Caviezel character, was that he's deserted, right? Which, to me, would imply some sort of cowardice. But I think what that does is, like, set up that expectation for you, but then that gets cut down later when you see what the bravery he demonstrates. And I think what you're seeing there is that he represents some sort of idealized version of human nature. And and those scenes with the village are, are... 
short enough in duration that I don't they don't detract from that, but the the Caviezel character demonstrates really what the, the visual inclusion of the villagers does in his personality like he that belief that w- looking out for others that yeah. sort of thing that that for I, that just community aspect that empathy for others sort of thing is in him at a very basic level so i think it does a couple of nice things in that it sets up this impression of cowardice which it knocks down through what you see him do later and it makes you think about really what is he then yeah i i'm kind of with you peter on the sense that like and i think it's due to the part of it is due to the pure cinema sense that we were talking about earlier because those initial like much like how like you can uh, um pass along a lot of things that happen in badlands because it's sissy's face's perspective i find the beginning is shown in such an idealized way i mean just so so idealized that you still get into some like kind of problem aspects where as if like for example if some of the humans were replaced by say the songs of humpback whales <laughs> would there be really any difference in Clavizel's <laughs> attitude towards them and yet i don't know i don't really know if the movie makes any sort of distinction like that but but i but i do find it effective that it's Clavizel's has found nirvana has found in some way he's been touched by this sense of uh, grace or how, how he says you find the glory you look to find the glory he's he's had a touch of it so he and this touch of his is this like this kind of internal flame that like that like Sean Penn's character kind of wants to like snuff out or diminish out of existence because he doesn't he has not found it in himself you know and so he's or or rather he's felt it snuffed out in himself but he sees that like Clavizel feels that way you know and i think maybe the idealization of that does bring that does bring that sense out in him and i really like that point you made about how like you see him and he's like totally doesn't have any um, he just has some shorts on and so he's just having fun in the sun you know when you realize no he is a good soldier he is dedicated to people he just doesn't believe in the destructive part of the job of being a soldier. Well, and to the point at the end when, you know, he he's killed in the end basically volunteering for a mission he knows has a very high chance of going right. badly. And he does it because he's basically looking out for the Adrian Brody character. Yeah. Um, and we can talk a little bit about how little Adrian Brody is in this <laughs> film. At one point he was supposed to be the main character. I, I but, have him as the cast list here as... Um, uh, Adrian Brody playing the model for the scared baby dinosaur in Tree of Life. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and actually, they, they might be filming on the same river. <laughs> I, yes. I, I don't know. I, they they might they might be. It actually yeah. does. It actually does look visually echo does a uh, visual echo of that same river. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, also, to the point in the beginning about like how the the setting is idealized. I think it is a little bit to the film's detriment that it does not. It doesn't have a slightly more complicated view of nature. Mm. Nature is uh, depicted in trio. In, sorry, in the thin red line is as nothing but good, and glorious and wonderful, and um, and and man's imposition is always bad. Right, uh, and this is a theme that will be constant in, in Malik because if there are a few, you know, some of his core beliefs, one of them is. Nature, nature is something pure and must be emulated, and that we're losing our humanity the further we get from nature. Uh, yeah. I, I, if I could, I maybe just would push back on that a little bit. Sure, I, and I would, I would say that I don't think nature is this pure thing. 
like you mentioned the opening shot is an alligator going under into some dirty water submerging mm. itself almost like a predator would and i would say that like what what bothers malik is that nature has both things in it it has beauty and it has the potential for destruction mm. and i that's how i see his how he sees this and the fact that is that he his emotional tie to nature is made all the stronger by how much he's sees it be able to damage what its own beauty in a sort of way it, that what i mean is it's just that it's obviously that he has a lot of emotion invested in it yeah and he and the beauty and the fall from beauty yeah. are both there when he looks at something like a forest and, and the war gives them the opportunity to play this at a bunch of levels individual characters versus one another man in nature man is a destructive force nature is a beautiful force you know the uh, native people there as part of nature's beauty there's so many levels that i think this movie works on that mm-hmm. that kind of fits in with malik's themes and that's why i think like i can go back to this all the time and, and see things in it well like there's a sequence in the middle where i think like huh, it's ironic that it t- that uh, the part of the plot features a hill because i kind of think that at uh, a movement on the hill like reaches like an apex for it, which is like just one of my favorite sequences of all Malick films. And like, as we've been talking, like Malick is like his has this questing spirit of finding just what's interesting, what's unique, well, these particular details, you know. And he's usually done it in cuts in his previous movies, and and definitely in his later ones. But there's several sequences where they overrun a village. And it's all done in these like yeah. continuous steady cam shots for like for like half a minute at a time. You see these soldiers and they're running through and and but and and it's the the onrush of just humanity and violence and destruction and just the sheer randomness of 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 all humanity just it just comes at you in like this just sustained burst. It feels to me like a total infusion. Like, you could look over on the left side and there's a person praying. Just out and praying. Whereas all these gunfire. Then on the right, there's like something just gets... Uh, something gets like beset upon by a grenade. And then there's others. There's like five... Three people are fighting off like with a bayonet off in the distance. And then there's, and then the the soldier who we're following just cuts in through an entire house and it changes from light to dark to light. And then he exits and it becomes like this whole... You see 15 people, different individual battles going around. And you just get this whole panoply of humanity. But unlike like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan where it's like a sustained burst that hits you like in a direct way for a direct reason... You get this all-encompassing thing, this all-encompassing sense of like, not just like the destructiveness of war, but the the glory of war, or the randomness of war, and the randomness of people, and how they react to that situation. You get it like all at once, and has the Zimmer's magnificent score just rising and just building and building, and it just like, it's maybe it's in a way it might be irresponsible, but I just feel like this kind of ecstasy of connecting with humanity when I get to that scene.
I don't think that's irresponsible, and I don't, I don't think the the movie gives you both sides of it too. Because one of my favorite, I, I, it might be my favorite Malik shot is I believe it somewhere in that sequence is a scene where there's like a half buried face of a Japanese soldier. Yes. Oh, that's unforgettable. Yeah, yeah. And, and that and, and the voiceover says something like, "Did you didn't you did you not know that I was good too?" or something right. like that. Yes, and the film teases us with the idea that it is going to treat uh, the Japanese as so many uh, war films do, as uh, faceless enemies. Uh, as, as in the first part of the film, we, we don't see them. We see you know, this hill and very little detail about the hill. But starting with, with that shot, Peter, that, that you're referencing, this, uh, uh, you then get uh, Japanese prisoners of war. You, 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 you see the battles more close up. And and Malik does not forget to include uh, that humanity uh, on the Japanese side. I find it so effective how he takes all these different emotional registers for how everybody reacts to that scene where the Japanese soldier is like whispering. There's a one particular soldier. Uh, I forget who plays him. He takes like souvenirs and he arranges it on a ne- takes teeth and arranges it as a necklace around him and there's a point very late in the movie where he's holding the necklace and he's I think he's fingering the necklace and he hears that voice and then he breaks down because he's finally just realizing the import of what he's doing and this was like some sort of compensating mechanism to make treating them as like less than human and then he just can't take it anymore and it's a as a fellow human, he just finally just breaks down and re- and realizes this, and and like there's other different cine- uh, different like tones taken by different soldiers. I'm all, I was really taken by Woody Harrelson's role as like a sar- as a person trying to attack the hill, and he basically suffers a fatal blow from a horrible accident. So his performance is like the way he's just realized the sheer futility of how he's going to like expire because of a mistake, I think was just really, really potently done in that scene. I, I feel like a scene like that would have been a lot more effective had they not used Woody Harrelson, the actor, as mm. they did. Not that he did anything wrong, but the, 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 the film has this strange obsession with the celebrity cameo yeah, uh, between uh, Travolta uh, and Clooney, and and Harrelson's got a little bit more, but we we never get to know his character because he dies so early. But it, there, there's something distancing about just how committed the film seems to be to having a celebrity in in every role, and, and in this this particular role. Where he's dispatched very early, and you know he pulls his grenade wrong, and 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 it's a scene that that, that if you if you want to think about towards kind of kind of the grunt soldier, I think would be more effective than if you're kind of teased into the idea that well here is one of our main actors, and we expect some more character out of him. It's interesting that why that Malik chose to make. Like, such a cameo-laden, celebrity-laden fest, you know? And it also ties into, like, it's an interesting facet as to, like, sometimes, like, an actor's persona, like, can help enhance a role a great deal. Like, 
I would just say as one example, like the film version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf might have been a very perfectly fine movie, but when you realize it's Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor Mm -hmm. with their history, it makes the movie like four or five times more interesting. And maybe more mileage could have been made from like the different personas, like how maybe how Travolta is status and Clooney's status as megastars could have better informed the fact that they are people who are removed from the grunt work of soldiering, for example. You know, maybe some more headway could have could have done from that. But it does appear like to be the war version of like a love boat episode. And, and it may also like stars be, just keep coming, you know? Right. It may also be a financial thing is that's how they got the film funded. So I mean on well, that on explains a, the first Ten, right, right. right. <laughs> well, I, I think what you just said—I mean, I think what you just said—is true uh, almost to this day with Malick films. Mm-hmm. I, I think, in large part, they get funded because A-list actors will work with him, and you can sell something as challenging as *The Tree of Life* as the next Brad Pitt movie, right? Um, Michael Fassbender in *Song to Song*, any number of examples. Without that kind of star power. Like, I don't know if these films get to the marketplace. I'm not saying that's, like, good necessarily, but if it means that they're there versus them not existing... But then you have, you know, Sean Penn and Nick Nolte, you know, who have really meaty... Yeah. roles where they get to sink their teeth into it and and you put that against you know George Clooney winking Frank Sinatra cameo yeah that's right and, and, it, yeah. and it, it, it it just I think Pacific un- Oceans 11 right under under <laughs> undercuts it just a bit I, I I should mention the third plot line which kind of bothered me in the film which is the one uh, involving Ben Chapman's character private Bell because mm-hmm. It is so simplified, I kind of couldn't believe this made the film, and apparently so many other plot lines got cut. But uh, he basically is is, uh, remembering his wife, and and it's not just a little bit of screen time. A lot of screen time is devoted to these flashbacks of him frolicking with his wife back back in the States before the war, war and remembered the, the idealism of those days. And then... Lo and behold, he gets the dear, dear John letter, yep. and his wife uh, ha- has left him, and that's all there is to it. And yeah, I'm for for the amount of screen time that plotline got, uh, I needed there to be something something there to make it worth our while, other than just kind of the most basic statement that you know, yeah, people. Uh, lost loved ones stateside by being away at war. Well, I, I guess for me a little bit, and I, I don't disagree with you that this certainly isn't the strongest part of the film, but did you feel anything at all for, like, when when he's idealized her for a significant amount of screen time, as you say, and then he gets that letter? Like, I've, I mean, I felt a loss there. Hmm. I, I did. I mean, it, it, I wouldn't say that, like, when I think of the movie today, that's not what I go to, obviously. But, like, you know, you talked a little bit about not getting to know, like, Woody Harrelson's character. And I think that, you know, Ben Chaplin, like, the fact that we do spend so much time with why he's there and just kind of the mistakes he's made. And now he's just trying to get back to the one thing that he holds dear when he's kind of messed up other opportunities in his life. The fact that that one thing that's been keeping him alive is now lost to him. Like, I did feel, I did feel that. Largely, I, I think Malik gets some credit here. 
like as you said, you know, ninety percent of her of the wife's appearance is upside down swinging. Yep. <laughs> but um, but you know, like he does a great job of idealizing her the way the husband would. Yeah, you know? in a way, like the wife and the swing is the same as Clavizel's island and Islanders. It's the idealized world that he wants to get back to. You know, and I think it's presented in this idealized way. I'll say that like the two facets that hit me in a really weird way with that those sequences. First off, the narration and the sentiments that so many of the people express through their narration is so similar. And um, Chaplin unfortunately has enough of a physical resemblance to Clavizel that I, for decent periods of the first time I saw the movie was confused as to whether they were different. I, I had that exact same problem. Did you? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I'm in a safe space here because the first time I saw it, I confused those two kids. Okay. And, and wow. What, All right. Well, because one of the things that's tricky, and I mentioned like this was sort of my art house introduction in a lot of ways. There's a flashback very early with Caviezel like back on a farm or something. Right. And then I don't think they have him in flashback again. And then after that, they have flashbacks with Chaplin, but you only see him from behind. Yeah. So it takes a little while, at least it took right. me a little while, yeah. to puzzle out exactly what was going on here. So I, I confuse those characters as well. Yeah, and and it also speaks to like my that this was my first movie of Malick's that I saw was that I saw like her on the swing and I thought, well, this is just the idealized version of Malick. Malik's version of love and romance in the 40s. He was doing this as a conscious choice to go and um, say, oh, it's the setting is the 40s. You want this like Andrew sisters level of romance and like, you know, there's ideas of going steady and so on, you know, and and you're not going to go for anything particularly carnal for that. So I thought these were all decisions that he made <laughs> to fit the movie and they do fit the movie. I do feel that way. But I didn't realize that, no, that's basically how he's going <laughs> to... It will not be the last swing that we yes, see. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's that, that level where you're frolicking around, you have the curtains billowing by the windowsill. <laughs> no, that's kind of Malik's go-to move. <laughs> but I did not realize that at the time, so I was very much imprinted by, oh, that's, it was lovely. I was, I was very taken by this sense of, like, lost romance in, in the film. Uh, and so, yeah, I kind of shared your sense of, like, that like that, that something he was looking forward to is lost. I felt it for Chaplin, even though, like, like she was so underdeveloped that I'm just sure. like, well, I don't, you know, it, it definitely could have happened. There's nothing really tying it except that, like, he thinks that it should happen, you know. It reminded me a, a little too much of when somebody coughs in the first act. You know it's going to happen in the next act. Oh, you really Same. felt that the other shoe was going to drop yeah. as soon as it brought in, like... Because like, if something is that perfect in a film that okay. uh, is showing the darker side of humanity, yeah. it's there to be taken down. Yeah, you know what? That's a case where that's a case where the days of heaven effect for you work like gangbusters for me. Mm. Like the idea I felt in the ideal the idealization, the saturation of the colors just just and and plus that level of like merrick, merriment and joy at like the most trivial moments of being around the house was such a revelation to me. I'd never seen anything depicted that way in such an such tr such basic things of human activities around a house is depicted in such epic romantic swooning scale, you know, that that 
that it took me. That that actually took me, and I was just like, boy, I just hope that there would be a, a homecoming or a letter, something, so that he gets okay. That's the part where it, it won. That won me over. Hmm. But to me, like after they get past that hill, after they get to those, the resolution of settling up for the battle, it just. To me, the film just runs on a lot of steam after Chaplin gets the bad news. And, like, not a whole lot happens except that they have to maintain this river. And then Adrian Brody's character, it's the problem is not actually that his character doesn't do anything except look like a scared, bug-eyed squirrel wandering around in a river, but that it actually dedicates an inordinate amount of time for him doing so. <laughs> like, there, he does not have any dialogue, but he's just spending a minutes at a time looking scared in a river. It's well, as if there were a whole other subplot that <laughs> might have been uh, considered. Yeah. Well, I, 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 For those who don't know, it, I think it's worth it to point out that this is... We've already like glanced at the idea that Malick is, uh, maybe has been a tough director for his, for his cast and his crew, but very few directors have really done a person dirty the way Malick treated Adrian Brody who had a literal major speaking part, and not only did, like, Malik cut that part so he doesn't say a word in the movie, but in a rather horrible development, failed to inform Brody about this to the extent that when the movie was premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, Brody invited his family to go sit in the theater for the premiere thinking that he was the star of this movie. And, oh... To be a relative of his at that theater, and and uh, you're not going to shake Malik's hand after that. Let's put it that way. Well, well they got to go to France, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know that that is. That, yeah, that, come on, let's have a perspective. That that is, that is, that is it, that's a horrible story. I mean, you know, kind of like we were saying, we were digging the movie for having all these celebrity cameos. Like, I wonder how many of those actors thought they were cameos when they signed up for it. That's, that's right. That's right. And, and by the way, I think it's totally worth it to just go in the list of like this is the list of people who were completely cut from the movie. Like, and it's it is a rogues gallery. It is like Bill Pullman, Gary Oldman, Viggo Mortensen, Martin Sheen. Wouldn't that wow. have been interesting? <laughs> Jason Patrick, and check this out. It was, and this is a really interesting facet because originally the narration was all going to be from one voice. Yeah. Billy Bob Thornton was supposed to provide the overarching narration for all the events. Of the thin red line. Okay, I'm in favor of that cut then. <laughs> but that that was I, I think that that one the shifting voiceover I think is a real strength of the film. And just to jump back, I think especially with the Nolte character, mm-hmm. I think it adds something there because it's really easy just to look at him as like the hard ass villain. Yes, right. And without That's a great that point. without that voiceover of him feeling diminished and and yes. so on, like I don't think you it, it makes it harder to hate him when he acts like a complete asshole and you know just keeps pushing yes. later in the movie no that's 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 so true and i think it also as as effective as codius is i think it's good that he has his voice over too to mm-hmm. just really see how the suffering of his men really affect him that it's not a matter of that's not a matter of cowardice or reticence is that he's he has just this real increased sensitivity to their right. to their to their suffering and and the trials that they're that they're going to go through but that being said, in general, I kind of think if it, though I completely agree with you, I think it applies in Nolte's case. If they had 50% less narration, if you just literally had the discussions between Clavizel and Sean Penn, if you just had Clavizel's level of faith 
coming through on his eyes and his demeanor and his actions and the actions of many of those people, it could probably have enhanced the movie. um, Because I think these actors were so really effective at being able to do this just through their dialogue and just through the way they behave in war and just in the battle, the getting shot, trying to recover. I think they could have pulled that off without having the narrator point out, like, why are we doing this? Mm. Um, but in some cases, it would have. In some cases, it would have. It worked out like gangbusters, like with the soldier who has the the um, voice of the Japanese soldier whispering on him. But a little more selection would have actually, I think, enhanced the picture. At least that's what I feel about it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't argue. I, I I think for me, it, and it maybe it's just a, somewhere along, you know, the bell curve is the maximum point or something. And yeah. I, I think it's closer to that for me. And I, I think the dial, this voiceover is perhaps my favorite writing of his in the mm. voiceover. Um, I think, uh, you know, like I said, I don't want to be pretentious, but it is poetic in places. I, I think. Yeah. And I really like, and I could see where that would turn people off because it's it's aiming so high. Yeah. But. To me, it gets across the finish line quite a bit with that ambitious aim. Only one thing a man can do. Find something that's his. Make an island for himself. Let me feel the lack. Glance from your eyes, and my life will be yours. You know, watching watching a lot of Malik's in a row is kind of kind of keeping track of. what films had the most voiceover, and, and, and it's really interesting that uh, after the amount of voiceover that occurs here, his next two films have less voiceover, and then when he moves into the final uh, stage up till now of his career, the voiceover resumes its dominance. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting, Brad. I think you were like saying uh, you had mentioned at some point that there is like so you find some phases in. Oh yeah, I think that that we can look at Malik thus far as kind of a three-phase career, hmm. which is the first two films, uh, Badlands and Days of Heaven, happening before the uh, 20-year uh, self-imposed exile. These are the films where he develops his style and where he introduces Terrence Malick to the world. And then I think the next three films, uh, Thin Red Line, A New Wor- The New World, and uh, Tree of Life, is Malick expanding this vision, taking these ideas and trying to apply them to history, and finally to all of humanity, and then finally to himself which uh, brings up the third phase of his career, the improvisational phase that we'll talk about when we talk about To the Wonder, Knight of Cups, and Song to Song, where they are uh, inward-looking, made-faster, improvisational pieces, and very distinct from kind of the epics that mark the second phase of Thin Red Line through Tree of Life. Hmm. Yeah, he's he does take, like, the... 
ideas on the historical ideas and looking at things in the past and in ta- the same way taking the idea of narration to go and provide out on different perspectives or maybe tying things out to a universal perspective or exploring those differences and and I think he like does a more fair equitable like distribution of perspective and a more equitable take on history in his film that he followed up with um, uh, from The Thin Red Line. Uh, that's the, the New World in uh, 2005. They're a mere uh, seven years after his previous movie. Basically, his rendition of the story of Pocahontas, the founding of Jamestown, like the strife that had happened uh, there between the um, colonists, led somewhat by um, uh, Colin Farrell as Captain uh, Smith and uh, ultimately headed by Christopher Clummer as uh, Captain Newport. The strife between um, them and the natives, who they call the naturals, is uh, they get to broker a peace done by uh, uh, Colin Farrell's Captain Smith's interaction with Pocahontas, played by, I think, a complete newcomer at the time, Korean, uh, Korianka Kilcher, basically goes through their the interactions between um, Pocahontas and John Smith as the colonists try to survive, and then, in a very interesting twist, Captain Smith has like, left the picture, and what do Pocahontas do with her life and the now with the lost relationship that she had formed with him, and how does she reform? And it looks at a new world for her, whereas like this was her home. She has a, gets to be a new has a new existence in a wonderful to me a wonderful reflection of the colonists' experience of a new existence. So I mean, how do you guys like think that it takes on the the Pocahontas story? Well, I, I kind of surprised myself with the, the more recent viewing of this because I didn't quite connect the first time I saw it. And then when I watched it again, I, I liked it a lot more. And, and I did like particularly the uh, contrasting of, of the two halves here where you're looking at this is a new world from the colonist point of view in the first half, and we see the Native Americans uh, initially as something very foreign, and then as we get to know them, we, you know, we 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 get to know their their culture in a way we don't in the culture in the beginning of a thin red line. Yeah. Uh, but then when Pocahontas serves as the bridge through the uh, Christian Bale, who's a uh, you know, who's a more uh, traditional English uh, figure who take who marries her and takes her back to England, and now that becomes uh, right. the new world. For Malick, I think it's his se- second most just narrative film, uh, next to Badlands, in its the the centrality of the story. In maybe I'd even say it's conventionality, but I don't mean that in a bad way, because it's dealing with. Malick's themes and has and it, it, and just the environment is the perfect uh, yes. showcase for the way Malick uh, visually presents the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm not as high as this one uh, on this one as you guys are. I, I really want to like this more than I do, mm-hmm. but in a lot of ways, this movie feels like the deluxe version of Days of Heaven to me. 
<laughs> like with all with all the good and bad. Like I think I think it's beautiful. I think it has a, a very strong performance from Corianka Kilcher. Like she's yes. outstanding in this movie. Yeah. The fact that she should be that she should be and is the focus of the film, and she for an, a first performance. I don't know if I've seen yeah. a better fit of performance and actor with this movie. It's just amazing. Yes. That said, <laughs> I think the film, the two, the, there are two things that this film suffers with for me. One is that, especially in the extended cut, I think, and I, I didn't go back and rewatch the theatrical cut, so I can't really compare it all that well, but I do feel like pacing is a problem. Like it sort of meanders a bit. Um, you know, it, it, it goes like, it'll have sequences where, Smith and Polkandis are together, then they're apart, then they're back together again. And it, it doesn't really have a sense of drive for me, especially like when basically the extended cut is three hours long. The first Smith Polkandis part is two hours, and the last Smith, or I'm sorry, last Polkandis Rolf part is about an hour. Yeah. And like it, for as much time as that first segment takes, it doesn't feel like it has much drive to me. And I didn't always know where it was going, which would be fine if it delved into a character in John Smith, I found more interesting, which I'm shocked to hear myself say, because like, here's a guy, you know, getting over to America for the first time. And that should be so inherently interesting that I don't know how it doesn't come across that way. But I will say that I'm not sure Colin Farrell was the right fit at this time in his career for this role. Hmm. He plays the lead role as like many of Malik's lead characters are often kind of withdrawn and distant and he has some of that aspect to him but what the story's supposed to be giving us is his awakening in a sense like he's supposed to be one woke colonist basically (laughs) and Hmm. and he doesn't like i don't get that from him he kind of like understatedly says how much he values the native american culture and he's clearly infatuated with her like that comes across but i don't get this sense of you know he he's a prisoner when he comes and now he's free because he's found this new society and like i just don't get that through his performance i, I think you hit the mm-hmm. nail right on the head because i think colin farrell is the weak link in, in the mm-hmm. film and that the film actually gets better as there becomes less colin farrell <laughs> and uh, and more uh, christian bale again due mostly to the performance of the actress uh playing pocahontas yeah. but uh i i did not get a chance to see the extended version so uh, i'm basing my thoughts on the theatrical oh, version okay. which at no point did i think needed an extra half hour uh added on to it there is something distancing about about colin farrell here that that somewhat keeps this uh, from going to the next level. Okay, that I base my opinion differs from you guys both. Actually, to get a little background to it, um, I was not very sympathetic towards Farrell's character the first time I saw the movie in theaters. The spoiler on the movie is that like he is called away to go on an expedition after he's already had a romance uh, with with Pocahontas, and he just ditches her he uh, ghosts her i think is the term because he literally so because he literally tells his uh tells his assistants to just tell her after two months that oh no he died and uh and he's uh, never coming back because he's uh because he's dead and so that's a horrible dick move and the first time i saw the movie i was uh, I had lost him, any sympathy towards him whatsoever at that moment, and I was just and I just figured, 
as to what you were describing, Peter, is that it was like a dances with a dances with wolves uh, avatar kind of situation of the guy learns that the natives are pure and good and so on, you know. But what seeing the movie today or recently gets for me is that Fer- I see that Farrell was doing quite a lot, and it's not about his obsession or his value of the of the naturals, but his love for Pocahontas just and and his ambiguity, Farrell's acknowledgement of his own weakness, of his own inability to transcend, like the the culture, to me comes through. It's like it is a it is a sense of like the darting in his eyes, the kind of like furrowing when when Pocahontas is not looking, the furrowing of his brow, just like just the the halting demeanor when he when he realizes he he cannot find it within himself to run away with Pocahontas like i just found that like Farrell was really effective at bringing this whole sensibility out about like that of of like of weakness and trepidation and internal conflict and not in an incredibly obvious way but he he shows this level of pain through his like through his very eyes on it, uh, uh, in in the movie for me, and so I was really taken by his by his level of appreciation of his loss. Like when at the end of the movie, he actually gets a reunion where he says, "You know, I should have went with you. It's the only thing that ever really mattered." You can maybe dispute the whether, you know, living that way would have really mattered, but for him, I'm completely convinced that for him, he realizes the scope of what of what he's lost by what by what he's done. I like Colin Farrell as an actor. I, I think he was the best part of a pretty lousy second season of True Detective. He's good in the lobster. I think he's good in, in Bruges. There's Wonderful a Wonderful in, in Bruges. Yeah, he he's capable of giving amazing performances. And I don't want to pin it entirely on him because you know it's hard to know sometimes with a Malick film right right? but I I think to me like what you're describing I think is there maybe or supposed to be there but I just and and I'm happy to hear you say that because I do think this is a movie that maybe the more you go back to it because he's certainly understated so maybe the more you see it the more that comes across I, I, I just didn't feel that from him the passion wasn't there from his side. Like he plays it so withdrawn that maybe digging deeper, I'll see it. But man, not not this time. And, and I will say that, like the one part of the relationship I liked, you you talked about their kind of reunion at the end. Yeah. The one thing that comes across from him is that the whole movie is essentially like the British kind of confining Pocahontas in some way. Yeah. Like first, you know, first in their camp, and then in constrictive clothing yeah. and shoes and then eventually kind of parading her around mm-hmm. uh you know in england itself and i think the reason like he won't be with her at least part of the reason he won't be with her is because he realizes that that will be constraining her and he says at one point like i'm not going to bring her here as a prisoner or something like that yeah and, and even, even though it will keep um the the native americans from attacking right yeah yeah it's a case where the per- his personal feelings are not congruent with the feelings of the uh, natural population so i really like i guess what i mean is like i like that high-minded ideal like the way that malik's looking at the relationship in those terms yeah but the emotion part of it isn't there which is the same way i felt about days of heaven 
where like it has all this amazing historical detail around it and the new world is maybe even a little bit stronger in its point of view on those things but i the central relationship between the characters i just could not get there and the same the same for the john rolf sequences uh with christian bale another actor i like a lot to me he's essentially like kind of a noble bore in this movie like he's not very doesn't have a lot to do he's just just like he's just a good guy he's the ralph bellamy of colonists (laughs) yeah John Smith, in the perfect version of this story, which I I don't think we we have yet, would not only be believable as a romantic interest for Pocahontas, but also somebody who, you know, would be a credible leader of the colonists. Christopher Plummer seems to put a lot of faith in in, in Colin Farrell's character's uh, leadership for no good reason I could tell. Right, um, right, and, because but, he's almost set to be hanged. <laughs> right, or, yeah, so he's thrown at the beginning. It's almost a, a little cliche at the beginning. He's like, oh, he, he, he's the rebel. He's the he's the guy on the ship that didn't behave. Oh, there there's furry Colin Farrell, you know, going, <laughs> going his own way again until finally he... Um, you know, he he goes native and falls falls in love with Pocahontas. But how much more interesting would that have been if that were not his the way his character was set up as somebody? Of course, he's the one that would because he's not happy with the status quo to begin with. But wouldn't it be more interesting if somebody who was a true believer in the colonist project and in what England was trying to do to go to the New World then was? brought into this new culture and changed because of that. Right. That's the that's a great point. And 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 I think you're especially correct on that part where like at some point he should effectively show qualities of being a leader seeing as how during different er- parts of the movie he's actively leading people. Does that really look like something that Colin Farrell's character in um, the New World would want to do? Would feel responsibility of taking up the mantle? I'm not sure if Colin Farrell's effectively bringing that part across, that he feels responsibility for his fellow colonists. Well, and all those transitions are handled really quickly. Like, he's in chains, he's about to be hung, oh, he's spared. Mm -hmm. You know, he comes back from from being on the Native American reservation, and immediately Thulis is killed, and his main qualification to be leader is apparently you're not David Thulis, so, you know, now you're in charge. And, And, like, if it was going to, it needed to build to those moments more to have them invest in his to have you invest in his character that's a, yeah that's interesting because the building of the moments contrasts to me with one of the things I also really value about the movie in the in that like as we've talked about Malik Malik is really good at like having setting and being showing how setting can be transcendent but here the setting here he's still doing this but the setting that is transcendent but also reflecting upon the harsh reality of the colonists existence you know I think it does a job just as well, if not better, than McCabe and Mrs. Miller of showing just how tough it was for this town, mm-hmm. this fort to exist. It's muddy, it's dirty. These posts are haphazardly like tied together. And when winter comes, you basically have like a wall and a blanket to go and pro- to go and protect you, you know. And disease will strike and. And people, you'll lose people, and you'll the crops will have like the crops will be beset upon, and and it's just such a horrible, horrible existence that like that those actual transfers of power are really we're like, well, this guy's a leader. No, we need to this guy's a leader, and just 
you feel the desperation upon that, which is, um, and you feel the conflict with them and the naturals is also done in like you get an extended look at the na- at the natives, like their rituals, like the way they gather food, the way they play, the way their families act. Like the different costumes they have, the different rituals they have. It's such a very fair, equitable treatment on on that subject. And especially nice is when they note that they are making deals with with the um, colonists. And while they still hold stuff like the cannons in awe, they still say if they if they try to impose on us, we will drive them out. You know. So they're unlike, say, in the Thin Red Line, they're not treated as these hapless innocents who are being imposed by the bad, evil technology. Uh, and then, of course, the movie does just really nicely with that pivot. It's the new... I mean, that pivot is such a remarkable move. Such a brave and inspired choice to literally say, you think it's the new world for one person, but it wasn't. It's the new world for... It's the new world for Pocahontas. And the new world in multiple ways. She kicks Sissy Spacek's ass in, term, in terms of playing an innocent who goes and learns about life in the course of an intercontinental historic making event. You know, she goes and like, she's such a picture of innocence in the beginning, like, and she's such a great, and by the way, she's such a great radiance presence as an actress, the camera's just naturally drawn to her. But then the way she's treated by the colonists and specifically by Colin Farrell, her heartbreak, her sense of loss is so deeply, can be so deeply felt in that film. And just the fact that the movie pivots to having Rolf, who is like, like you said, Peter, this total goody two-shoes, but otherwise doesn't have a, a single thing interesting about him except he's dedicated and he's a stable. That whole sense about like how her how her true love for Smith combines with her sense of how, how she has to find her way to fit in a world that is so beyond her understanding. I mean, and it, is, it is so born well by this actress. It's just amazing to behold, you know? Just like it's literally showing entire education in, like young, in both age terms and cultural terms and social terms. And I find her journey just... Tremendous, and I want to just experience that part of the movie again and again and again. Well, I, and I like to. We were talking about like you know the movie is called The New World, and from an American audience perspective, I think we have this idea of this grand like you right. know it, like establishment of what will eventually become America and all this stuff. And I love how like much attention the movie pays to the Native American customs and how the details there and it, you know they I have the feeling that they got that stuff right, and I, I I want to feel that that culture and I want that feeling to undercut this sort of manifest destiny thing we would normally think right. of from an American perspective. And I love the tweaking of the meaning of the New World when she goes to yes. England. It doesn't. What the movie is is not what like kind of the surface level connotation you would take from a the, a movie called The New World. And if you watch yeah. some of the uh, DVD documentaries, uh, they did take very uh, good care to look at actual right. um, rituals and have uh, Native American uh, leaders on set 
and as consultants to make sure there was uh, that kind of accuracy. Yeah, and it, that goes along, I think, with what we were a little bit with. We were talking about the thin red line as well. Mm-hmm. There's no other in this movie, right? Right. You know, I, I, I really think that that's so vital to this movie being what it is. That and uh, and kudos to Malik demonstrating that throughout his career that because he wrote these movies right, right. I mean yeah. that's important. Yes. there's no there's no whitewashing here. There's none of that. You know that and the and maybe you know this movie I believe was 2005, so 12 years ago. I'm not sure if there was that much attention paid from an industry perspective to things like that as there is today. But this movie got that part right. And, you know, as much as I think it may be lacking some other story areas, there's a lot to like about this movie. And, I mean, I think that, like, this to me, on a personal level, the New World is, like, kind of the perfect combination to me of Malick's interest in, like, story, his level of openness towards all different, like, people and cultures and maybe trying to connect to a universal story, and his desire to show like that the most intimate moments can like maybe the most transcendent moments so you have like i think that's a case where the length of it is something that i really enjoy i enjoy the the kind of the the various interactions that like pocahontas and john smith have just like just the smallest uh, out moments out by out by the riverbank or having her up, up climbing on a tree seeing him out up down below you know in a way they like the world is their tree house, their badlands level treehouse, I guess, <laughs> and um, and how like how like basic elemental features like fire and water are given time to breathe and echo and reflect upon their burgeoning like their burgeoning romance. And the movie gives and the, at least the extended version that I felt it gave them time to do that, but then it also had time to address the. Uh, issues with the colonists fairly, and then also get time to acknowledge the um, details of the conflict. They literally have battles and 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 stakes and like and and specific positions that people argue for and against, and then to just do the change, just to do the change of setting. Just the change of setting is just what a brilliant third act thing for me. You know, mm. just give it like a whole other setting and makes you. And does one of the best things that I think a movie can do is it can like, and it's something that Lone Star, which one of the, which I think one of the greatest films of all time, does. It takes your framework of what you think the movie is about, and then it airlifts it and drops it in a totally different setting. But then you realize the connections that are out there are the same, even if the setting is different. Like just like what you said, Peter, about the double meaning of a new world. It's a new, yeah, it's a new world. But it can be a new world for different people and different situations, too. And that enhances both ways. Both the sense of, like, England and the U.S. can both have, in their own way, be a new world to different people. But And you only get there by treating the Native American culture as an equal at least in this film, right? Like, yeah. And that you have not something to be conquered and run over and forgotten. Right. Like, it's, but to be honored. And, and that's, I, I can't, I don't think I can overstate how well this film does that. Right. The way that when she arrives in England and there's like, and they're bowing down to her. Right. Like, and, and plus, and plus her, her treatment of herself, you know, she goes through so many phases of being like 
both like being a princess, like the held in the highest esteem of her own, her own culture, and then she's totally cast down to being literally like, I th- like being like treated like as a slave in some sequences. But then she gets built up again, and then she has a different stature. But part of it is like exotic. Part of it is like the a sense of a different person. But then part of it is also that she's grown herself as a person, and. It's how she accommodates these different parts for herself and these different phases of her life and all its highs and lows to become a more mature individual. It's just... Well, and she reflects um, growing older without the use of makeup. Uh, it's, uh, a lot of it sometimes is use of clothes and costume, yeah. but uh, her demeanor yes. is expressing uh, her different ages uh, in, in various parts of the film as we see... She has a you know a child, and you see that you know he's uh, about you know four you know four years old by the by the end of the film. Yeah. yeah. On the narration score, this is also a case where I think the narration was done in very nice proportion. Maybe there was less of it. It less enough. Let's mm-hmm. put it this way. Question you. some points where you, there is some points where explaining the different points of view, especially for Rolf, mm-hmm. is, would have been help, are, are helpful, because because he's a very stoic presence, and maybe some of that would not have been delivered necessarily through, like, physical performance, but for, um, for the main actress, her, like, when she makes the decision near the end, that this is the guy who's right for her at that moment, it's all reflected in her face. You do not need any narration to go, I've chosen you. Like, well, Eventually, she did, does get elaborated later in a poetic kind of way, but that's all on her right at that moment. And, and, and it's a great combination of like direction of performance and performance itself that um, Corianka uh, did just such a magnificent job, I felt. And I, I think that end, the end of the movie especially is pretty tricky because I think what's happening there from the British perspective is that they're almost looking at her as almost like a curiosity in a lot of ways. Right. Like, and there's some uncomfortable stuff. And, and I think the movie has to address that because the British would have looked down on her. Right. And, you know, when they receive her, she's dressed in this finery. And the and Corianka does, uh, Kilcher does such a great job of letting you see the value in that person. But the British, like, they also look at, like, they have an eagle there. Right. They have another animal. Like, uh, there's another animal in a cage or something. Yeah. And it's almost like, I think the way you're supposed to take that is that they're viewing her on that, in that same plane. Mm-hmm. And... With, you know, I think the movie does a great job of saying, like, here's how British society saw her, yet look at this radiant performance, look at this yeah. character that we've spent so much time with, and let you consider that. And I, I think that's handled pretty well in that sequence. Yeah. Yeah, the de- it gets the details just so right. Like, Brad, so how you were saying, like, even her hair just gets more and more intricate the more and more she gets intricated into... English societal behavior. <laughs> like right. by I mean, the end, the, it's like totally like wrapped around and around in the back of her head. The key change happens when uh, an older woman is uh, provided to her uh, in the uh, in the fort uh, yeah. to basically 
make her more Western to right. uh, help her adjust to uh, to the new world. And, yes. and part and part of that too right. it, to to go maybe something more on the uncomfortable side that the film deals with is her baptism and the changing of her name. Right, right, right. Rebecca. Rebecca. Rebecca yeah. I, I think that that is. I found that sequence pretty disturbing i thought like it bothered me yeah you know also the word pocahontas is never used never said right yeah right yeah right it's i mean i think that there that there was like another name that she goes by in the um well in the ending credits she's referred to as pocahontas but but the name is never said and and there's an awkward point where they get like the point where someone's almost gonna say it Mm -hmm. and they stop and they're like oh they don't call her that anymore yeah oh it's really Mm -hmm. interesting yeah right because because it's so much about identity Mm -hmm. and then in a way it does us in the audience a favor because you have the idea of pocahontas from the disney and all these myths about like how that that spawned up because of how you know pocahontas helped the u.s uh destroy the indian population and so on right (laughs) and and not naming it not naming it is key, both in terms of getting our own expectations out of the way, and also of making it a point about that she has to define herself. To quote another another movie about that issue, like Lawrence of Arabia, it's not his real name. Then I guess you have the right to make your own name, and it's kind of about that. But it is about their own name, your own identity through two. Incredibly different cultures, and through so many twists of fortune, including a very fair look at like a romantic triangle in terms of like desire versus like stability, and those kind of this and those kind of like measured decisions and and choices is such a great to see someone go grow into appreciating that kind of complexity, and you just see it all on screen. It's all beamed at you from the cinema screen for it. Yeah, uh, my only uh, one, if I had one wish for this, that last part with John Rolfe is that, you know, we have Christian Bale, a great actor, capable of many great things. And there's even a voiceover that sets up that he has tragedy in his past. He's lost his wife and family. Right. And yet that is just like never like addressed in any way, either through performance or story or anything. Right. And, you know, if you really had someone who was more than just the good guy who was trying to build a life after he lost his previous life in essence. Yeah. I mean, that adds a whole other layer of emotion and meaning to that. Yes. And, and to sort of like, like hint at it and then just run away from it. Like that was a disappointment. Right, but, but, but right. Archety- archetypes are not uncommon in, in Malik. Films. True. And, uh, I think, uh, I think we've, we, we, you know, we talked about, you know uh, what could have been with Farrell, but um, in both cases, you know you have you're, you're dealing with with types that are interesting, mostly in as far as how they interact with Pocahontas. Yeah, true. She is she's definitely the fulcrum, the light upon which actual hi- the history is uh, revolving. I think that all just goes back to my need for greater. When when he has these romances, I just want more character yeah. relationship. Yeah. And, and I think that that at least for me, that's a trap Malik falls into. Right. And I, and I get why that might not be necessary for others, but yeah. I, I I needed more there. Well, don't worry. Eventually, you're going to get much less. <laughs> <laughs> Take yeah. your period romance and like it. Damn it! You're not going to get it. Yeah, from this like period out to like. 
to like that whole expansive look at like these like these totally different environments. Malik decides to up the ambition even higher, and then he gets to aim for about as high as any director, any creative person can aim to go. And we'll be talking about how well he succeeds with his next film, The Tree of Life from 2011. <laughs>